This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the podcast host here today and also CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients with their digital transformation journeys. And with me, as always, is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Got uh, three main segments for you. We're going to start off with the Hot Topics uh, discussion, talking about trends in the digital transformation space. Uh, We'll start off by talking about nanotechnologies, which is a top five technology to change lives. Uh, We'll also talk about bioflock technology. I have no idea what that is. So I'm going to learn along with the audience here today. And then we're going to talk about non-college based technology training and and different sorts of technology training options other than your traditional uh, universities and colleges. So we'll talk about that in the hot topics as well. And then we're going to talk about the next billion dollar startups, uh, which will be interesting. I'm curious to hear what those are. And then we're going to talk about Tattle Tech versus quiet quitting in this new hybrid slash remote uh, workplace that we're all still adjusting to. So Tattle Tech versus quiet quitting um, should be make for an interesting and entertaining conversation for sure. So we'll cover those hot topics. And then later in the show, we're going to have Blythe Brumleave on, and she's going to be with me and Kyler talking about the future of supply chain and logistics. So we're going to talk about just sort of what what in the world is going on with supply chains today and how can supply chain organizations and logistics providers, how can they become more responsive and how can we better manage our supply chains in the 2020s and beyond? And then finally, we will have uh, Dave Beldick on the show, who is a senior manager here at Third Stage Consulting. And he's just, we're going to play a clip of a presentation he recently gave at one of our Stratosphere online events. Uh, and that topic is on operational excellence. So it's a very operational and supply chain intensive episode here today. So if that's uh, an area that's up your alley, then you'll you'll enjoy this this podcast episode in particular. So before we get to our guests, though, later in the show, let's talk about some of these hot topics you have for us, Kyler. Absolutely. Well, recently, some studies have profiled the top five emerging technologies that will change our life. And we talk a lot about those on this show. We talk a lot about um, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics, um, automations, those types of different things more in the business sphere. So, but I thought I might profile one that we actually have never talked about on the show that's called nanotechnology. We have in in some different subcategories, but I thought it might make sense to just define it and kind of have a conversation around it. So basically what nanotech technology does is it enables the manipulation of matter. So a near atomic state to produce new structures and materials. So we think about the three states arguably four, right, depending on if you count plasma um, within matter. Uh, But basically, this will affect a wide range of healthcare industries, manufacturing industries, uh, and then also in disease prevention as well. When we talk about things like food storage, um, 
renewable energies, new clean energy initiatives that we, we talk a lot about. And basically, the nanostructure fillers can also remove viruses or impurities in water as well. So when we look about uh, emerging industries in marketplaces that might not have that infrastructure within connectivity, it has the power to kind of create change and, and um, an infrastructure that would have the opportunity to lay the, the foundation for more businesses in the area or more um, safe drinking water conditions as well. So wanted to get kind of your feedback on this nanotechnology, thinking about not only from a socioeconomic side of understanding what it means for emerging countries or governments, but also on the business side, specifically when we talk about things like manufacturing, supply chain, inventory, these freight shipping, which we talk a lot about in this episode. Um, is this something that you think will be um, a main growth area within emerging technologies within the next two to five years? Yeah, it's, it sounds like it, it already is becoming that. And, uh, and I think the, the focus on, you know, climate and sustainability and all, all sorts of things of, of that nature, uh, that general trend, I think, would point to this becoming a, a pretty common emerging technology for sure. Yeah, also, I, I think in the food and beverage space, which we do a lot of work there, um, it's, it's really an interesting uh, trend in emerging efficiencies of how long can you store food. We've seen, you know, a lot of those food-based uh, supply chain challenges where you see food going bad or going to waste because the refrigeration isn't something that they can sustain when it comes to blockage in the marketplace or in logistics. So I think this is a a really exciting new um, technology that will make it more efficient and more productive for people to not only be able to eat and drink clean water, but also for manufacturers to be able to sustainably uh, base food logistics and forecasting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that's becoming such a such an important uh, function in today's day and age that I agree with that. I think that's that's seems to be where technology is headed. Absolutely. And on that same lens, we have the concept of this bioflock tech. So basically, we've seen a lot of capital funding in this specific emerging technology or industry. So I'll tell you a little bit about it and kind of the capital that is raised. And we can kind of talk about what we think there, that um, this might emerge to in, in specific businesses. So basically, this is a three-pronged technology that includes the, the bio bioflock technology, which creates an ideal environment to protect specific food and beverage manufacturing. So in this specific case study that I researched, they profile shrimp box, which is a sustainable plug and play shrimp farming technology uh, that kind of has surfaced. It's a Mexico City based company that has had $4 million of new funding in their A series. Uh, there's also a U.S. headquarters and then a South Korea-based company called Cellmeat um, that actually raised $9 million in their first round for lab-grown shrimp. So a lot of movement in the shrimp industry. Uh, but this technology and processes creates an ideal environment to protect shrimp from disease. They can grow without the need for things like antibiotics or really harsh chemicals. 
Um, and then there's also a minimal need for water discharge. So if you might be in an environment that isn't really a water based, a lot of this um, new farming is done here in the Midwest that has that farming infrastructure, but might not have the environmental needs to support shrimp farming in the same way that somewhere on a coastal area like Mexico would. There's also a really interesting software aspect um, that, en that enables, excuse me, remote operation management of this production. So you could essentially drop your shrimp in the deserts of, uh, you know, Nevada here in the United States and still have a really high value revenue based shrimp production, which I think is really interesting. Uh, the production management is, is uh, the workflow is mapped out via data that are different data points within sensors in the actual uh, whatever type of uh, storage you have for the shrimp. So a lot of these look like a, a capsule or something like that that doesn't look like a shrimp farm <laughs> typically. Uh, finally, the third prong on that is the artificial intelligence um, powered automation and engineering components that are designed for the remote um, monitoring of the water quality. They regulate temperature and ox oxygenation um, and feed the shrimp. So a really interesting new kind of farming technology when it comes around that. So first serious question is, would you eat farm-based shrimp? And second non-serious question is, do you feel like this software when it comes to the automation within farming is going to create that efficiency within the industry um, and really create opportunities to farm crops or meats in areas that you typically wouldn't see that from a historic perspective? Well, yeah, to answer the first question, I, I would eat uh, farm-grown shrimp. I suppose yeah. I, I don't really think a whole lot about how food is made. I try not to think about how or where food is made because I might not eat a lot of what I eat if I knew, if I thought about it too much. Um, but I think, you know, it's, that's super interesting. I didn't know that was a thing or a, a technology, uh, but it's also not surprising, I suppose. But it's it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how much of an impact that has on the overall global food supply you know, in terms of being able to now produce food in different areas than you might not have been able to in the past um, and just make better use of land and all, all you know, sort of a lot of uh, other benefits, I would think, a lot of secondary benefits to that approach as well. Absolutely. And, and on the software side, just understanding the needs of the business or the opportunities on that side, I think will be something that will be really an exciting opportunity, but also a significant challenge for businesses that move into new tech. So from that perspective, if you are in an industry that is constantly evolving, what are some things that you can do to make sure that you're selecting kind of the next level software that's going to produce and, and support this type of growth? Well, I think the first thing is to have a decent understanding of and clarity around where you want to fall on the maturity leading edge scale of technology. You know, so in other words, just because there is new technology or emerging technology out there that can do certain things doesn't always mean it's ready or that you as an organization should be ready for it necessarily. So in other words, uh, you know, companies that are um, have bigger fish to fry to uh, pardon the pun, the, the food supply pun, um, but, but companies have bigger fish to fry. And, right. <laughs> exactly. But organizations that are, are, still trying to figure out how to do just more basic inventory management and things of that nature 
might want to fix that basic more foundational technology first before they start getting into the really super um, sophisticated newer technologies. Uh, but if you're an organization that's pretty technology savvy and you've already had that strong digital foundation in place, then yeah, I think it makes sense to go pursue some of those um, emerging technologies. So I, I think the key is really not to bite off more than you can chew and just be realistic and self-aware of where you are in terms of digital maturity and where you're trying to get. And also, you know, what is the cost and risk of going that direction? Absolutely. Um, definitely something to involve those experts, right? I think that's the biggest thing of, of understanding someone that is an expert in that specific industry to kind of help you, whether it's a, a software vendor, a consultant, those types of things um, to be able to understand, you know, what that next level opportunity can look like. Yep, absolutely. Companies like Third Stage, that's that's what we do. Yeah. We, we help clients yep. uh, figure out their digital strategies and roadmaps. So if you want to farm shrimp, you give us a call, okay? Right. <laughs> um, so let's talk about some of these interesting new startups uh, that Forbes recently released. It's $2022 billion startups list. This is a forecast. These aren't billion-dollar companies yet. Um, but they're uh, raising a ton of capital. So I picked two to kind of talk through that, that we haven't um, really looked at these industries yet. Um, and I just simply like their names. Um, so Cowbell Cyber, which I think is a very interesting name, is, does a really interesting, has an interesting business model. And it actually provides cyber insurance for small businesses. Uh, so basically, if you are a small business, you don't have those in, in-house competencies, but obviously cybersecurity is a main need for all types and sizes of businesses at this point. So basically, their technology relies on artificial intelligence for um, continuous risk assessments and underwriting for risk management. Uh, and in, in March 2022, Cowbell raised financing um, and in the round that they raised, it had they they let everyone know that they had developed the largest cybersecurity insurance distribution network in the United States with more than fourteen thousand producers in its growing risk monitoring pool. Um, they also support twenty three million businesses, which is seventy percent of the U.S. small business market. So. Really an interesting opportunity here in a niche area. We don't hear a ton about businesses that want to support SMBs in general because that you know there's not a, always a ton of money in that. But I think it showcases a, a really unique niche opportunity to be able to be on the technical side of supporting SMBs. So wanted to hear kind of your feedback um, in being an expert in that area, as we do have a main um, network of small business here that we actually have a specialized team to support. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, this whole, this whole uh, type of technology you're talking about is, is interesting because it's, uh, you know, the, the world seems like it's shifting to be pretty focused on risk management and risk mitigation um, given all the everything that's happened in the last couple of years with pandemics and wars and supply chain issues, food supply issues, all kinds of stuff that is translating into risk for organizations and, and consumers too, for that matter. Um, so anything that's touching risk or mitigating risk, I feel like that's uh, that sounds like that's uh, kind of where we're headed. 
Absolutely. And just understanding, I know um, recently we talked to Christy Barber, who is our special uh, specialist in small business here at Third Stage. And she talked about the risk assessments that we actually do for clients. That's one of our main first steps when it comes to software or understanding new processes or investments for small businesses, because it can be a make or break situation when looking at new systems. Uh, so I think it's very interesting and, and a great evolution in the marketplace to have that support specifically on this, the cybersecurity side. So let's talk about one more. Um, Link Squares is actually a developer of legal documents and analytic platforms that's designed to identify key data liabilities in contracting. And maybe it might just be because contracting terrifies me, but I think that this is such an interesting business model because it used that AI powered contract management platform and it provides its customers with everything that's needed to invest in a contracting phase. You could write, execute and analyze um, contracts very quickly. Um, its flexible platform offers customers better visibility and collaboration. And in March 2022, they raised $100 million in Series C funding um, that was led by G Squared, which is their, their funding capital management uh, partner. So Link Squares, I, I don't, I wish I had like Marcus Harris on the line or something like that to tell us that this is probably just a, a baseline automation, um, but definitely something that's interesting, especially again, for those small business technologies that you might not have a full counsel in contracting. So knowing that contracting is, is a risk in itself, what is your feedback to an automation that helps with that side of the business, specifically in software vendor contracts? Well, I, I think it it could be it can be a good thing. I mean, I think it it is a way to hopefully streamline and centralize what's a pretty complex process for a lot of organizations, especially really big organizations that have pretty robust and complex uh, procurement processes and contracting processes. Um, that could be uh, a good thing. But I think, you know, you, you touch on something, though, that's important, which is you still want to, you know, technology itself on its own isn't going to solve your all your problems. So if, if you're trying to untangle the complexity of your procurement, a lot of times it's behavioral, it's, it's people and process based as well. So, yes, the technology can help with that, but also making sure that you address those the people and process sides are equally, if not more important than the, the technology piece. Absolutely. Definitely a good baseline to maybe work on, but still ensuring that you do have that specialist, you know, again, to review that, that contracting and in, in that, but, you know, things like terms and conditions for your website, those different pieces that other platforms can produce, I think is something that is really interesting to be able to, to look at. Um, so if you want to see that full startup built next billion dollar startup list, head over to Forbes and um, you can kind of look at the, the other um, new startups in that area. But I want to transition to talk a little bit about organizational design and just over some HR human resources topics. So we have this idea that's emerged as a trend in the marketplace of of non degree tr tech training. <clears throat> Excuse me. So one example here in this case study that I researched is the Northeastern state of Connecticut a university here in the United States. They've invested over $70 million in putting 
um, their students and young adults uh, through technology program training that is not a bachelor's degree. So it's not a typical degree. It's a much faster expedited process to train in a certain area of technology. And the, the student that they actually profiled in this research at 27 was making $90,000 in the tech industry uh, because of that specialized training without a bachelor's degree. And we've seen that trend actually move into large technology companies because of that need in the marketplace right now and labor shortages. So companies like IBM and Google have actually started their own pro programs because they can train workers faster than universities. And you're not complying that student debt, which is obviously here in the United States where it is private universities is a, a really large pain point for young people. Uh, so I personally think Eric, this is a great idea and, and well, um, well needed historically um, in, in getting bachelor's degrees, which can almost be a status symbol when it comes to actual quality of candidates um, in my experience. But of course, that might be an unpopular opinion. So I, I want to hear your thoughts on kind of this tech-based training program um, and in those, those really white-collar jobs without a college degree. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, and it's one that's top of mind for me, the sort of top of mind for me recently, just having kids that are teenagers in college on the horizon, you, you do tend to wonder like, what's, what's the best approach? What's, uh, how do you, how do you invest in their strengths and not necessarily go the cookie cutter route just because, you know, that's the way I might've done it or you might've done it. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, part of me thinks that, um, I think there is a definitely a, a huge underserved niche there and it's not even a niche. It's, I think it's a pretty widespread opportunity to train people in ways that colleges just aren't built for colleges and traditional universities. Um, I, you know, I, I, first of all, caveat it by saying I have a master's degree. I value uh, education for sure, but that was 25 years ago. And part of me or it was 25 years ago, I got my master's degree. And so I wonder like, would I do that today? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know if I would, if I were, if I were graduating, I'd probably go to college, but you know, would I go get a master's? Would I go get, you know, some sort of advanced training in a traditional college or university? I don't know that I would, to be honest, because I don't know that the cost benefit is there. Not, not only do you have higher tuition, but to your point, um, can you just provide something that's more focused and more beneficial to a student? Uh, and I think the answer to that is yes, especially in some of these technical spaces. Um, same with like supply chain too, like supply chain management. I feel like if you want to, people ask me all the time, should they go get a degree in supply chain management or a master's in supply chain management? Um, if they're in the workplace already, should they go back and do do a sort of an executive program? I don't know that I would do that, to be honest. I, I might just look at a more technical or a, uh, a more focused sort of training like, like you have. So I think the good news is there's options and I don't think it's as bad. It, in the past, I think there would have been a a stigma associated with doing technical trade sorts of college. But now I think that's becoming less true. I think it's, it's just good to have these options that are viable and in many cases, lower cost, higher value to students. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, my husband and I actually always talk about that because he does have a very fancy MBA. I have a bachelor's degree and in a traditional work environment, he will always make more than I do because of that status um, and he 
he um, he's a very smart person, as everyone here already knows. But but we he also you know has a huge amount of debt because he worked through that um, that piece. So you always wonder, kind of like you might make more, but you you never know if that's always going to be the right path. So I'm excited to see some more specialized opportunities for our, our next generation that might give them an opportunity to be financially stable out right out of the gates. Um, which might cause here a rippling effect um, for their overall uh, future. So I think that's something that uh, could help the housing market. It could help a lot of things here here domestically. Uh, so I personally think that that's a, a great a great trend to shift to. So um, so lastly, within that that HR kind of hot topic, I wanted to talk about the the difference between quietly quitting, which is a new trending word in the industry, and then also tattle technology. So as we go into a remote workforce, many companies are simply uncomfortable with having remote employees that they don't know what they're doing all day. It's a huge culture shift for not only executives, but also managers learning that middle manager tier, how do you manage a remote employee? That's a really difficult um, question to answer. So we have this emergent of new tattle technologies. And basically that's productivity technology that's going to completely monitor what your employee in a remote environment is doing all day. And um, as a caveat to that, you've seen new devices such as a mouse wiggler trending on TikTok uh, because it will wiggle your mouse all day long without you actually being in front of the computer. So already new workarounds within that process. So you have that on one polar side, and then you have the, the new trending content of quiet quitting, which makes you're doing your job, but maybe like a 50, 40% productivity level, but nobody is able to kind of monitor that or see that. So you're not openly quitting your job, but you're not, you know, giving a hundred percent each day within your position. Uh, so lots of different kind of conversation talk tracks we can take in this, but just from a, a knee jerk reaction, what are your thoughts on these two new HR trends? I'd say they're both semi-concerning and, and different for different <laughs> reasons, uh, for sure. I mean, the, the tattle tech, um, I don't know. I you, that sort of big brother watching what employees do and what keystrokes they enter. Um, I don't know. It, it's not a good way to build trust with your with your employees and with your team. And if you're concerned that you know people are just are remotely working or you're in a hybrid work environment, and therefore you feel the need to tighten the clamps on you know providing that sort of oversight. There's probably better ways to do that. Uh, you know, through coaching and leadership and just guidance and in an expectation setting, things of that nature. Uh, the minute you start putting in technology that watches what people are doing, I think it just creates a, a weird uh, distrust between employees and upper level management. And that's probably not the, the healthiest uh, work environment to be high performing. So I'd say that's probably concerning. And I would look for other alternatives to, to Tattletech if I were, if I were an organization that was considering that, which third stage is not <laughs> just to be clear. And it's not something we would do. Okay. Um, no, just <laughs> as far as except for our market, except for our marketing department, yeah, we watch <laughs> we watch them box everything they do. We're we're watching you guys. Yeah, <laughs> we're okay. But, uh, 
but actually, you know, though, here's another thought as you were talking about that, um, the, the, uh, tattle tech, I was thinking about, you know, one way you could get to that same end result, which is if, if really what you're trying to do is measure and know that your, your team is performing, there's other ways to do it. That's less, um, invasive. You know, you could do business process mining, for example, to see how efficient your processes are and then taking more of that global view of, you know, how fast your process is happening or where the bottlenecks, that sort of thing. Um, it doesn't necessarily address the individual accountability factor, which is what I presume organizations might be trying to get at with, with tattle tech, but um, something like a business process mining exercise could be a, maybe a better way, a less threatening way to do that and still get a, the same end result or the, the intended result. Um, as far as quiet quitting, um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, these two things are interrelated because if people are quiet quitting and I saw that article. Yeah. What's that? I said, there's a reason for that. Right. So that that's the kind of the double edged sword of, of this conversation. If, if you're going to be completely lack integrity in your, and this is going to, you know, again, an unpopular opinion, if you're acting like that, you're a terrible person. I'm sorry, but like, there's right. no reason <laughs> To, to do that, I can't even believe it's a trend that people um, will talk about it, but it must be, you know, a real thing, you know, to have, yeah. especially in, in larger organizations. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's a great point. I, I think, you know, the tattle tech probably stems somewhat from paranoia and micromanagement and things that are unhealthy, but it, it could also be brought on by the employees, the same employees that might complain about uh, tattle tech are giving employers a reason to want to deploy that sort of technology because they're quietly quitting and only being 50% productive, um, which is why I, I honestly don't think this, uh, this work from home trend is going to stick. Uh, honestly, I, and I know that's not at all popular. I take a lot of criticism for saying that, but I just don't think long-term um, you're going to have a lot of work from home. You might have hybrid flexible work environments. I think that's probably going to be pretty common, but I think there's just constantly going to be um, a challenge with the lowest common denominator, unfortunately. So, you know, you may not be one of them listening, but you look at the bottom 10 or 20% performers, they're probably going to drag it down to where, you know, working from home just doesn't make sense because there's no accountability, the, the productivity is not there, that sort of thing. And I know that there's exceptions to this and I'm making some broad general, generalizations, but um, I think the quiet quitting is is just, I don't know, it's it's sort of like there's a there's seems to be a movement in the workforce that we want to work from home. We want to just be able to put in 50% of our effort and we don't want employers telling us what we can or can't do. We don't want technology watching what we do. It's sort of like everyone wants their cake and eat it too. And it's like, well, you can't have it all. So let's figure out what the right balance is. I mean, you still have to perform. You still have to, you know, collaborate with people at times you might have to go to the office. God forbid. I know it's a terrible thing for some to imagine or fathom going to an office, but um, anyway, so I, I, I think that's a, is a really interesting uh, a thread that ties back to the whole kind of shift in the workforce we're seeing. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, could be a, an opportunity for an, an HR specialist or a guest for help us understand the why behind that, because um, I think you and I are like minded and that you, you know, you go to work, you do your best. Um, my mom always used to say, we all work, we all eat. Growing up, that was like the mantra of our family. So I don't really understand a lot of, you know, that overall entitlement. But I, I, I can only imagine the balance, especially for larger, larger organizations. 
and just this, you know, emerging of new KPIs that really has to understand. You have to retrain your entire management workforce if you are in a remote environment and then understand what are those key performance indicators that's showing you that your business is trending for a revenue loss, for an efficiency loss, those types of different things without completely, you know, creating a distrust within your overall culture and environment. Because no matter how you spend it, Tattle Tech does not, it's not a good look. It's just, there's no way, I think, at least in my humble opinion, that you can integrate something like that in a system that employees are going to feel good about. They're, it's just not possible from my own marketing and internal communications perspective. But you do obviously need to monitor production, you, your business. That's the, the point of it. So I think it's a really in, interesting balance between the two and being able to look at an employee that might be going through some lack of engagement, we'll call it instead of quiet quitting, and be able to identify that resistance and understand how to address it in a remote environment, which can be, I assume, very challenging. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I think the other takeaway from this too, you know, from both of these trends um, is that, you know, especially in that quiet quitting article, which I, I saw that on, I think I saw that article on LinkedIn or somewhere, and maybe you shared it with, I don't remember who shared it. Someone pointed it to me on, on LinkedIn. There's a whole article about it, but um, one one thing that it, that's opened my eyes is it's it's clear that especially younger generations are are sort of demanding a, a different balance, and I don't want to say work life balance because it's more just it seems like they have different priorities and they they aren't as interested in really buckling down and being solely focused on their careers. Um, and I'm not saying this is a criticism by any means; it's just I think a shift in priorities. I think some I think the younger generation is saying we're not going to do what our parents did or our grandparents did and work our butts off and not have a lot to show for it potentially. And, you know, they just want more out of life. I, and so I think it's, it's probably coming from a good place, but, but it, it does make it more challenging for, um, for leaders and for organizations. So how do you, how do you keep them engaged? How do you, what can you do as an organization to get them excited and maybe wanting to, to be more engaged, or if not, if they only want to work half time, or maybe they, they're more of a, you know, a part-time flexible sort of work environment, then how do you, how do you adjust to that and maybe, maybe embrace it rather than trying to resist it or trying to change an entire generation? Absolutely. Well, um, when you crack the code, Eric, you let all of us know on how to hire Gen Z workers um, because yes. we, not, none of us know how to do it at this point, but we're, we're going to learn. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still stuck on blaming the, the uh, millennials, but I can't blame you and your generation anymore. Now we've no. started blaming Gen Z. Yeah. I mean, our old, our old millennials, we, you know, we, we aren't the same. It's not the same environment. I think that there is some silver lining to that, right? There is some importance to mental health in the workplace, to work-life balance, to being physically healthy, family focused, all of those things are good things. But when it comes to that, it's a, it's a very slippery slope, especially in keeping true to your identity as an organization. And I think that's my biggest learning and in being involved in that is there are some people that are just not going to fit that. And you either need to decide to shift your overall business goals and objectives to match the workforce or understand that it's, it's a much more challenging hiring and vetting opportunity and phase right now that we're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, it's a, uh... Interesting times for sure. And speaking of things that are changing and being disrupted, like the workforce, um, 
we're also going to talk about something else that is getting disrupted and changing in front of our eyes, and that is uh, supply chain and logistics. So we're going to uh, take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have uh, Blythe Brumleave, who is the owner of Digital Dispatch, and she's going to be on the show to talk about the future of supply chain and logistics. We'll talk about sort of where where uh, where we are with supply chain management today, how we got here, where we're headed in the future, uh, not just from a technology perspective either, but just more from a strategic perspective too. So if you are a supply chain intensive organization or are interested in that topic, you'll want to stick around for that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out there and subscribe if you haven't already. And I'm excited for our next guest. It's a first-time guest to the show talking about a recurring theme on the show, which is supply chain management. And we are excited to have her on the show to talk about the future of supply chain management and logistics. So with us today is Blythe Brumleave, who is the owner of Digital Dispatch. Blythe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And you pronounced all of that correctly, which is uh, very rare for for people who interview me. I know I know my name is challenging. I usually mispronounce names all the time, so I'm I'm just uh, glad I dodged that bullet here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here. It's great great to great to have you on the show. This is the first time you and I have chatted in a, in a podcast format like this. A really excited perspective and get your perspective on supply chain and logistics, which is something that you uh, touch on on a daily basis. But before I get into my questions and any questions from the audience, maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, sort of what, how you came up in this space and, and also what Digital Dispatch does. Sure. So my name is Blythe Brumleave. I have been working in uh, logistics and supply chain for Gosh, a little more than 12 years or about 12 years now, I got started as a an executive assistant uh, working at a 3PL, an asset-based 3PL in Jacksonville, Florida, here in the States. And at the same day that I started that job, I also started a sports and entertainment blog. Um, so I was a former waitress that kind of got recruited to go into the logistics field, knowing that 
I wouldn't have to sit at a desk all day. And so my biggest thing is I didn't want to sit at a desk all day. And here I am sitting at a desk all day. But my boss was a former truck driver who worked his way up in that company and, and bought out the rest of the ownership, became the sole owner of that company. And when he found out about my little side hustle with a sports and entertainment blog, he said, well, why don't you start doing that for us? And so I was handed the keys of the website development, design, and marketing initiatives for you know $140 million logistics company. Um, and I had really no idea what I was doing. This was really early on in the social media days. Um, Twitter had just launched. Um, I believe Instagram was either had just launched or was right around the corner from launching. Um, we were also uh, very new or very uh, early adopters to the HubSpot methodology of inbound marketing, um, which I was really passionate about. I, I've never been big on like, you know, cold calling or cold emailing. Um, those always felt like, you know, sort of the easy ways to to get leads and to get, you know, qualified business. And so during our, our HubSpot initiative, that's when we were the second logistics company ever on the HubSpot platform. So this is like 2009, 2010, very early on in, in those days. Um, so I worked for that company for about five years. Um, unfortunately, uh, considering you know an asset-based company, that was also during the Great Recession. So during the recession, during the downturn, unfortunately, that company ended up closing down after five years, which was super heartbreaking. Um, and then so that sort of put me in a position to almost be like at a fork in a road and either choose to stay in this industry or to expand out. I chose to expand out. I went to a uh, media side of things. So I worked for a magazine, worked for a radio station, local TV, um, did all of those things mainly in the sports and entertainment sector. Um, so then I went back after a few years because frankly, you know, sports and entertainment, you know, money just isn't really there unless you make it super big. So I didn't really see it as a long-term career trajectory for me. Um, so then that led me to go back into freight. That's kind of the funny thing about working in, you know, logistics and the freight world is that it always finds a way to sort of pull you back in. Um, so I went back to work in freight and quickly realized that I needed to launch my own agency that, you know, I needed to be able to call the shots and, you know, make the decisions on where I think we needed to invest according to the attention economy. And so that evolved into starting a different podcast, um, starting, you know, video networking, um, not video networking or video creation that le leads to digital networking. Um, and then now I do it full time for uh, myself, for the business over at Digital Dispatch. So I help other freight companies build a better website. And then on the other end, I also now host a show called Cyberly for Freight Waves that appears every Thursday at 2 p.m. So I kind of get to blend both of those worlds and get to talk to, you know, cool people like you and, you know, meet all the rad people in, in the chat. Um, and really, I think that's the, the beauty of the industry that we work in is that, you know, we're connecting the components of the components all throughout the world. And um, I, it's a new story every day. It's a new challenge every day. That's why I love this industry. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. It's a cool background, too, because it's not it's not just a traditional supply chain and logistics background. You know, that sports and entertainment piece that makes it uh, interesting, too. I, I imagine that somehow influences or informs the way you the way you do your podcast and, and the other sorts of marketing type of stuff you do. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I think for a long time, B2B marketing has been incredibly boring. And mm -hmm. when you really get into the niches of 
this industry, it's anything but boring. But that's all you see on the marketing side of things until, you know, just recently, until, you know, within the last couple of years, you're starting to see a, a, a brighter light being shined on the real work that we do, whether it's from, you know, sourcing or procuring, you know, different components or, you know, uh, trying to um, connect with a port over in Singapore. Like the, all of these things are just so cool. And now, you know, we're finally, we're just scratching the surface of highlighting those cool things that go on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got a ton of questions for you. You, you sort of touched on a lot of questions I'm going to ask you just <laughs> in that little intro though. So I appreciate that. That's super interesting. But before I sort of dive into these questions, I wanted to just turn to the audience really quickly and uh, just look at where people are joining from today on on the different platforms on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, we have uh, Jerry from Dallas, uh, Brent from Calgary, someone from Atlanta, Oman, Colorado, Paris, France, India, greet, uh, greetings from New Jersey, California, Italy, and just all over the place, Saudi Arabia and North Carolina. And That's India, awesome. By India. Yeah, so we're touching the pretty global audience here today. So thank you everyone for joining, especially those of you joining at strange times of the day for, for you or late, late. <laughs> I appreciate you being here today. Um, so I guess just to start, you know, I thought this would be a great sort of 20,000 foot flyover starting point for us. And then we can sort of dive into your background and, and your experience with supply chain and, log and logistics in a little bit more detail. But if we just sort of back up and look at um, what, what, what is logistics? I mean, just help us understand, maybe we kind of know what it is or we've heard the term, but just maybe help us understand what is logistics and how does it fit into supply chain management in general? Sure. So, so supply chain is essentially the, the component, bringing all of the components that you need together to build a product, build a solution, and then ship those items from port to porch. I heard that phrase recently and I just love it from port to porch. So the supply chain is that greater initiative of bringing all of those components together, the component of the component, but then logistics is the transportation management. So whether it's land, sea, air, um, also the, the storage of those goods, so warehousing that, logistics is really the transport of those goods to get them where they need to be. It may be, you know, you need to get them to the, the business or you need to get them to the consumer, but the logistics is the transfer of those goods from point A to point B. Gotcha. Okay. So it's, it's, uh, so supply chain is everything really from getting raw materials to the manufacturing warehousing, um, the port to porch part of it is within that. And then so we're we're kind of focusing within the logistics space in that port to porch space, and I hadn't yeah, heard that either. Well, yeah, it's, it's such a great phrase that I, I'm like, oh, gosh, I hope that, you know, I, I went and looked and to see if that website was actually taken. And it is. So unfortunately, <laughs> I could not claim it. Uh -oh. um, so yeah. shout out to the person who who did create it. But I think, you know, for for a lot of folks, they just see the goods around them and, you know, they never really paid attention to how they actually got to where they're at. And if you look around your room, which is something that, you know, a, a maritime is a, a perfect example of this where maritime shipping, you know, 90% of all of your goods. If you look around the room right now that you're in, 90% of those goods were shipped on a cargo ship. And so for, for us to think about the complexities of how to get your product into a storage facility and then from that storage facility to a container and then that container onto a ship and then the ship to you know another side of the globe and then to unload it and to transport it to another storage facility and then that storage facility gets transferred to another distribution facility. It's just, it's an incredible amount of work and software 
that is all involved in this process. Um, but the at the end of the day, it's still a lot of these transportation, you know, solutions that we have been using for hundreds of years, whether it's, you know, transporting these goods by by a ship or by a boat, um, or even some of the river systems, you know, that that, you know, canvas throughout the entire world. It's just so much going on that comes together in order to get the stuff that we need to, you know, buy off Amazon or to buy off of another provider and get it shipped to us in two days. There's a lot of things that go on during that process. Yeah. And, and things certainly have not gotten any easier with the pandemic and the disruptions and bottlenecks to supply chains that happened as a result. Um, what, what are um, some of the ways that the logistics space has evolved in recent years, either just strategically and or in response to some of the impacts of, of COVID and the related supply chain impacts. So I, I think of this in, in two ways. I think from the technology or technology aspect, that's a huge one. You know, for the majority of the time that this industry has been operating, it's been, you know, sheets that we manually fill out. It's a bill of lading that someone physically prints out, someone physically signs, and then that bill of lading goes from one part of the world to the other. That part of the process has not changed, but the, the technology that's come into the space. And I think the data sharing that's gone on is incredible to see. And we're, we're really only, I mentioned, you know, earlier, we're only kind of scratching the surface on, you know, on the content side of things, but on the technology side of things, it, it, especially from data sharing, I think that we are really only scratching the surface, um, being able to, you know, save, you know, 0.5% on the cost of shipment for your goods is an incredible savings and technology can give you that. And when you're talking about, you know, maybe like a pointed, uh, a percentage point or even a half a percentage point of savings, you know, think about a, a giant cargo ship. It just, if they have a making, you know, maybe $2.7 billion in revenue for the year, that 0.5% is a lot of money that you can save just simply by adopting new technology, data sharing between different companies, um, allowing you know third-party vendors to you know act, have access to that data, I think is another advancement that I really never thought that would come to fruition. I still think a lot of companies are scared to share their data because it is you know proprietary to their company. But on the flip side, the the amount of benefits that you can get simply by data sharing, I think is incredible. And we're only really scratching the surface. Another big area that I think has changed is that the ability to network in a digital environment first. You know, when COVID hit, that was the, because if you think about it, a lot of our connections that we made were made, you know, going to trade shows, going to events, going to conferences. And when COVID happened, that just dried up instantly. And so we were forced to change our networking habits from the things that we were used to to an entirely new environment. So you've seen the growth and you can see, you know, all the people in the chat right now that are coming in from LinkedIn. LinkedIn is one in particular that just exploded as far as, you know, network conversations that you can have. You can have a digital handshake with somebody from across the world and then be able to eventually meet them at a conference, you know, later on, obviously, when things, you know, sort of settle down from, you know, the, the, the COVID experience. Um, but nowadays, it, it's really quite remarkable to see that, you know, Apple and Spotify, they don't even technically have a supply chain category in like their podcasts or even like a, you know, a subcategory under business. 
but we still feel like there's is so much content that's coming out of these platforms. I saw a list the other day that now there are top 75 influencers in supply chain list. There's a top 60, you know, a supply chain podcast list. You know, these things did not exist two years ago. And a lot of those podcasts, honestly, are not very active anymore. But the amount of activity that we've seen since then has been just a dramatic increase. The 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 knowledge base of sharing of information is so crucial to this industry. We talked about, you know, data, data connections and data sharing, but also the information and the knowledge base and the experience sharing that's happening on social media, I think is another just, um, it's something that the industry has needed for quite a, a long time. And I'm glad to see it coming to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is interesting how, you know, once you start hearing politicians and mainstream media start talking about supply chain management, that's when you know it's sort of it's it's, it's a fairly big deal. And it was I remember right when the pandemic hit and just hearing politicians and people on TV talk about supply chains. I'm like, wow, I've never heard you never hear anyone talk about right. <laughs> it was it was almost weird. So it's good that it's become front and center. And then you know, more recently, it's become front and center in a um, in in a less positive way, I guess you'd say, in terms of people concerned about the supply chain, and rightfully so. Um, what do you think, you know, how do you think organizations are going to adjust to this, to this new reality, or whatever you want to call it, even though I, I hate that term, the new reality. Um, but what, but what, how are organizations going to respond? How, are, how do you think they'll evolve their supply chains and their logistics, logistics function within that to sort of adjust to this new world we're in? So the, I would say that for a lot of folks, adjusting to the communication aspect has been uh, very challenging for them. These are folks who have never been used to being on camera, um, not used to doing something like this where we're, we're going on live and we're talking about industry issues and how can we solve these complex problems. So I think that for a lot of organizations becoming comfortable with being on camera, executives becoming comfortable talking about, you know, not just you know, what's going on in their company, but the news that they may see out in the world, you know, maybe it's on freight waves, maybe it's on, you know, some other, you know, inbound logistics, some of these other, you know, supply chain focused media companies, maybe they see something there and they don't agree with it. Um, being comfortable sharing their opinions, not just in a boardroom, but in an online environment. Um, I think that that is still, if you are an executive in this space right now and you're not doing that, you are missing out on a goldmine opportunity because that is the quickest way and the most efficient way to have, you know, these digital platforms work for you and sell for you and market for you 24 seven. You know, we can't, you know, that as, as think for a lot of folks, we can't, you know, we're doing this live stream for about an hour today. But afterwards, what happens with this live stream? You're going to take it, you're going to put it on a podcast. You maybe will take it and use social media clips to put out to your social media network. That kind of content works for you 24-7. And so for I think for a lot of companies, adapting to that evolving business model, learning the technology that you have to use, not just to keep your business running, but also to keep the messaging running, I, I think is going to be one of the bigger challenges that a lot of companies are still just very um, challenged by they they um, they don't see the investment in it quite yet. But the ones that have over the last couple of years, they are reaping the rewards because the recruiting is getting easier, retention is getting easier, um, the ability to communicate with their team. They're probably you know for a lot of companies, you know, they might not be full time back into the office yet, but it's an ability to you know enhance those digital communications and supplement that communication until you're able to meet in person. 
Um, I think too, you know, we mentioned as, as far earlier with, as far as like the adoption of, you know, new technology and with adoption of new technology, I think that's another thing that's a big challenge for a lot of companies is that they see a lot of, you know, they're sort of as, uh, I guess, guilty of falling for like the shiny object syndrome, where they see like a shiny new piece of software, but they have no idea how the in the trenches employees are using software and getting the job done today. Um, so I think that, you know, it's great that we have all of this technology coming into the space, but how are you using that technology to make the end user or not really the, well, the end customer, of course, is going to benefit from it, but the end user who is actually using it on a day-to-day -day basis, I think there's definitely some room that needs, or some room for improvement that needs to be made there and, you know, to try to avoid that shiny object syndrome where you're just going to buy a piece of software and think it solves all of your problems when, you know, in a variety of different industries and aspects, that's just, uh, it's, it's, it's not the right way to look at it. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear your marketing slant, and I know that's your focus is is marketing. But marketing within logistics, uh, to your point earlier, you know, having that kind of focus and that sort of a spotlight on the marketing opportunities for logistics companies—that's just something that hasn't been that common in in the space. Because, like you said, B two B marketing has traditionally been pretty stale. You know, when you compare it to B two C and what some of the big consumer product companies do. So that's that's pretty interesting. We're here with Blythe Bremleave talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. We have a lot more questions to get to still, but first we're gonna take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. My name is Eric Kimberling. New episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to check us out there. We are in the midst of a discussion here with Blythe Bremleave talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. Um, one question I wanted to ask you that um, is actually not my question, so I will not take credit for it, but it's a really good one. It's from Sam Graham. Uh, welcome back to the show, Sam. He's a regular uh, frequent contributor to our to our show. Um, from Spain, and he says, will reshoring lead customers to expect shorter delivery times, and will that lead to new logistics challenges? So maybe just explain what reshoring is, first of all. Second of all, is that trend towards more reshoring? And, and, and maybe even bigger picture, it's not. It, it's also the, the sort of nationalism that seems to be spreading throughout much of the world that I imagine is probably impacting the supply chain as well. But how do you, how do you see that whole reshoring? What is that reshoring concept, and how do you see it impacting logistics and supply chain? 
So for for reshoring, particularly when it comes to the U.S., because with the the U.S., it's we've spent years, you know, offloading our manufacturing process to other countries. And when you have a situation like that, you realize how quickly it can come. It it, it can become a, a national emergency. I'll use um, Puerto Rico as an example because Puerto Rico, I think, manufactures ninety percent of the world's um, IV bags. And when they were hit by a hurricane, I think it was three or four years ago, I think it was Hurricane Maria. When they were hit by Hurricane Maria, they all of the world's IV bags were the, the supply chain was just it just collapsed within a matter of days. And so I think what you're seeing is not only reshoring and bringing the manufacturing closer to the U.S., but also the distribution of it. You know, the, the idea that you can have the world's largest supply, 90 percent of IV bags being manufactured in Puerto Rico, the world needs access to those. And so I think that you don't even realize it until an emergency has happened. And so when you have an emergency um, come up like that and also, you know, obviously with what we've experienced with COVID, now there is that financial incentive. I think for a lot of businesses, they see a situation like what happened in Puerto Rico and they say, well, that's, you know, that's only going to happen, you know, once every handful of years. That's not something that we really need to be, you know, worried about over the long term or we need to make these massive investments to bring reshoring back over to, say, the United States or even, you know, in Mexico, which is a big winner post-COVID. Um, that's where I think a lot of the opportunities are now being made is that you are bringing, you're realizing a lot of these business owners, they're being given, the government realizes it, first of all. So they're giving incentives to these companies in order to bring reshoring back to where it makes the most sense where you can reduce those lead times where semiconductors is is one of the perfect ones right now there's you know having the world supply of semiconductor chips being made in taiwan has worked well for a very long time but all it takes is one global incident and that is shut off. You can't use your phones. You can't use. You can't buy new phones. You can't buy new computers. Um, cars are sitting off in the lot, not being able to be driven off the lot because they don't have, you know, this one component of a component. And so that's where I think a lot of these businesses are now. They're realizing the national security issue that arises from not having multiple distribution or multiple manufacturing spots, multiple distribution spots, and being able to diversify. If you were going to war you wouldn't have all of your warships in one port. You would diversify them because you learned after Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, we had the majority of our you know, naval, uh, in, naval and air fleet all located in one area and all it took was one strike and you're wiped out. So I think that you're starting to see a lot of these businesses. I think it started with the government being able to offer these incentives to these business owners to bring some of that business back to the states. So now you're seeing semiconductor chips or manufacturing plants going up, I think, in Texas and Ohio, here in mm -hmm. the states. Um, you're seeing more manufacturing return to Mexico and being built up in Mexico rather than, you know, China and Vietnam. So it's a really fascinating sort of evolution of what it took to get the government to realize these issues to get then get create the incentives to make these businesses move their operations back because they were making plenty of money in these other countries. What's the incentive to bring them back? So you have to, you know, sort of it's these complex solutions to these complex problems. And thankfully, the government has started to recognize that and given these other companies the incentives to to capitalize on capitalism, I guess is probably the right word. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting, and um, I didn't I didn't realize that about Pearl Harbor. So I got a little bit of a, a history lesson in there too. I didn't realize that was a, a problem logistically with having all the 
all the uh, fleets in one one spot like that. And, and it is a good analogy or a good comparison to what you have to think about with, with supply chain too. Um, and I think too, um, I know one of the laws that the U.S. the United States just recently passed, the U.S. government, I believe, was to partially to invest in chip manufacturing in the U.S., knowing that we're too dependent potentially on other countries and there were shortages. And so um, it is interesting to see the government get more involved, not just in talking about supply chain management now, but now taking a more active role, for better or for worse, taking a more active role in sort of making sure that we're making these investments in, in supply chains and um, really diversifying, which is which is super interesting. Um, one of the other things you mentioned, that I think is a really important one. Uh, you talk about how we spent years and years building this global supply chain. Uh, and it, you know, it's really started what in the eighties, maybe or eighties and nineties, it seems like is where it really started. The, the pendulum started to shift toward that whole global supply chain, um, aspect with big companies like Walmart, you know, I know being a big retailer, they, they sort of perfected supply chain management back in the nineties and, and other organizations followed suit. So it's interesting that it's a really interesting point you make that you have say 30 years of this global supply chain that was built and in, in a blink of an eye, it's totally disrupted and you're sort of rethinking that whole thing and trying to adjust. Um, do you think, do you think companies are just, how, how would you assess companies in their, their success so far in adjusting to what they need to be doing to be more effective in that environment? So I think one of the the cooler stories that we saw coming out of the pandemic is, I mean, it's not really cool that a lot of these ships, a lot of these cargo ships are, you know, waiting, they're, they're at birth off of, say, the port of LA, for example. I think that they have um, at the peak, they had somewhere like close to 70 ships that were off the port of, uh, off the, the West Coast ports, which is the port of LA, Oakland, and then Long Beach. And so you had these situations where the, the waiting time was anywhere from 24 days to up to 60 days in order to unload a cargo ship. And when you think about that process of unloading, even when you arrive at port, then you have to take about anywhere from four to five days in order to offload that cargo ship. And whereas, you know, compared to the rest of the world, I think they can get it done. I think China can get it done in a day at the port of Shanghai. Um, there are other automated ports all across the United States, or not the United States, but across the world um, that have, you know, port automation. And so they can unload a, a cargo ship within a couple of days. But the U.S. is still largely behind when it comes to the automation aspect of ports all across, you know, whether it's the East Coast or the West Coast. And so what happens is during COVID, you saw some of these shippers, Home Depot, I think, was one of the first ones in order to they really just bought their own cargo ship because they couldn't find any space on mm -hmm. all, all of the cargo ships that were leaving China. So they really they they bought their own ship and they put their own products on it and then they transported all the way around, um, sometimes to the East Coast in order to to offload that cargo. Another interesting one was Amazon. They, they bought their own cargo ships as well. And instead of trying to wait it out on the West Coast, they just rerouted all of their ships that they just purchased and rerouted them over into the Gulf of Mexico. And I just think that that is incredibly fascinating to think about it, you know, not just because manufacturing, of course, is going to it, it's it's happening right now. Those, those chess pieces are being set up both in the United States and in Mexico and in South America as well. But those take years to build those facilities. What in the more immediate near future and what's really already happened is that these ships are tired of waiting for the space on the cargo ship because it's really come to find out, you know, it's really who, you know, 
in order to, or what kind of price you're willing to pay um, in order to get on to one of these cargo ships. I heard, um, I, I think it's Nathan Strang from Flexport. He said the other day that a lot of these cargo ships operate like a Disney World or a Disneyland where you have, you know, your certain access points where you pay your admission fee and you you can get on whenever you, you can get on the ride whenever you want to get on the ride. But then you can pay a little extra and get a fast pass or you can do a single rider line. So it's kind of an interesting comparison to think about how all of these major U.S. retailers were just struggling with not only finding containers, finding pallets, finding cargo ships and how they've really adopted their own internal transportation methods in order to optimize their own transportation process because i think it's somewhere up to like 40 45 percent um of a company's revenue is all just it go, or the a company's costs of doing business is all related to transportation costs so if you can control it you can get it down um you can get your shipments where they need to go which is probably more important right now is making sure that you can actually get the product and get it where it needs to go um, that's where we're seeing a lot of retailers focus. And I, I think that, you know, the, the purchasing of your own ship was one of the more fascinating things to come out of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. And that, that whole, um, vertical integration for lack of a better word, it seems like a, a lot of organizations are, are sort of bringing a lot of their supply chain functions in-house. And that's another part of the pendulum swinging or, or kind of going the opposite direction now compared to the past, where in the past it was all about outsourcing and finding the best 3PL provider and other third, you know, third party providers that can help with your supply chain. But now it seems like the pendulum sort of swinging back to where, you know, we need to control it. We want to invest in our own supply chain capabilities, um, which, which I find super interesting. We have a client actually that has, you might find this interesting. That we have a, a manufacturing client that was having so much trouble finding pallets to, to ship their product that they went out and bought a pallet manufacturer. <laughs> and, and it was it was that important to them, and it was that disruptive to their business to not be able to get pallets when they needed it, and the types of pallets. It's it's a custom product, so they had certain types of, of criteria they needed for their pallets. Um, and uh, I, I just found that interesting. Like you just wouldn't have heard that three years ago. I feel like and that, that just it was such a uh, pretty eye opening moment for me when it, when we saw that from our client. Right, because I mean, I, I think about it from because I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, and so there's parts of Jacksonville. I think you can probably say this for a lot of areas of the globe. Um, there's parts of areas of town where it's big city, but then you just drive, you know, 30 minutes in one direction, and it's all countryside. <laughs> countryside. These pallets are typically used as, for bonfires, so people would have parties and bring in all these pallets and burn. You know that it, they were free. They store you couldn't stores couldn't give them away, and they're just throwing them outside by the dumpster, and then they become this crazy commodity. Where I think the craziest price I heard was like thousands of dollars for one pallet, and I'm like, gosh, imagine wow. being in the pallet business. So that's that's a great story that they you know they just went out and just bought a pallet company. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, like if they're selling the pallets to their competitors or if they've sort of closed it off to where it's just for the, themselves. I think they're still. It would be smart running. if they did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> have, have premium pricing uh, to your competitors. Um, well, good. So there was another question I wanted to pull up here um, that I thought was interesting. I lost it here. Um, bear with me. I lost it here. The good news is we're getting a lot of questions. The bad news yeah, is Yeah, it's a lot of good questions. Yeah. Um, I'll let me ask you this. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to put you too much on the spot if this isn't an area that you're you have a good answer for. If if you don't, I'll I'll try to take a stab at it. Um, this is from Kyler, who's actually our, our podcast host, uh, listening in the background here. 
Um, she asked, when we talk about new tech and logistics, how have you seen best of breed solutions evolve in supply chain management? So in other words, oh. uh, rather than being dependent on like your, your traditional old school ERP systems to sort of manage everything for an organization, are you seeing supply chain technologies, sort of those focused supply chain technologies that's, that specialize just in that? Um, do you think that is that sort of a, a trend you're seeing or, or do you have any thoughts on that? That's a really good question and a little outside of my wheelhouse because I, I really have a, 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 I guess, a more awareness around what the freight companies are using, maritime companies are using. Um, so it's not really the, and maybe that's where you, you could maybe help shed some light on this because from a global supply chain perspective, from the logistics perspective, it's really about these companies, you know, you have a TMS, so a transportation management software, you have a WMS, a warehouse management software, you even have, you know, yard management softwares and, and things like that. But a lot of these different platforms, they are really trying to be a lot of things. Um, and I could speak from like the marketing and sales perspective, because a lot of these platforms claim they have, you know, good marketing and sales components to them. A lot of them are crap. And I have no problem saying that because I've worked in these platforms myself. It's been a few years since I've been, you know, elbows deep in a lot of these different solutions. But a lot of them, from the people I talk to, they they don't talk well to each other. And I'm assuming that that exists a lot in supply chain management as well, because in the logistics area, you know, it, it would be incredibly difficult to find a WMS that is also a really good TMS and or, a, you know, a TMS that also has a really good, you know, YMS component. Uh, they're either building it themselves and then just shutting everything else off around them. So there were two technologies that came into the space, you know, I, I would say probably about 10 years ago because the ELD mandates came through for a lot of truck drivers. You have to have these electronic logs that are built into the trucks. Um, so a lot of different technology solutions were building for ELDs. And instead, what they should have probably been building for is API integrations. And so API integrations, for, for folks who don't know, is just basically a, a stream of data of how you program your own data. So then that way you can plug and play with other data solutions. API integrations, I feel like, are only just, you know, another, I guess, thing that's only, we're only scratching the surface of what these API components can do. Because, you know, from from my experience, you know, I've, I've worked in home building, I've worked in, you know, obviously with, you know, sports, entertainment, and things like that, where the data connections are just so seamless. And in this space, they're not seamless. Um, you really have to really have a team of skilled developers. And that's, Primarily what I'm seeing now is that a lot of the bigger logistics companies on the freight side of things, um, they are really investing heavily into where you were lucky 10 years ago to have a developer on staff in-house. Now these companies are having 10, 20, 30 developers all within the building that can be able to create solutions on the fly. And they are building their own technology, their own API in integrations for their own software and then kind of shutting everyone else out. So they're building their own silos. So as if silos didn't already exist, you know, in, in the transportation space where you have, you know, port workers that are going on strike, you know, warehouse workers that don't want to work 24 seven, um, truck drivers who don't want to work 24 seven. There's all those individual silos. We're still seeing those in the technology space as well. But with the adoption or the more so adoption of API technologies, I think we're going to see um, that stress alleviate a little bit where there is more data sharing and there is more accurate, you know, data sharing via API integrations. I'm, I would imagine that a lot of that is the same with supply chain software overall. 
but I would love to hear, you know, your experience on, on if those, those data communications exist. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They're definitely getting easier to have that data communication and that integration between systems. So, so having multiple systems that specialize in certain things that can't be everything to everyone, um, is a lot more reasonable today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, so I think the good news is organizations have, have options. You know, if you want to look for that one size fits all single solution that maybe doesn't do everything great, but it does do everything to some degree, you could go look at a traditional ERP system or, you know, there's other options with, with what, like you mentioned, the warehouse management, the transportation management, the yard management, all these different systems that can specialize and do one thing really well. Uh, and this is a, actually another comment sort of building on this uh, from Gassan on LinkedIn. He says the days of MRP could be on a decline, forecasts are inaccurate, causing a cascading effect throughout the entire supply chain. ERP slash MRP systems need to be more agile and provide a bit of intelligence to the end users. And I think that's that's well said. You know, I think forecasting and, and you, you kind of mentioned sales and marketing and how that ties into to, uh, forecasting. Uh, organizations generally need to do a better job of that. Um, and I think that's the other thing is that things were a lot more predictable before the pandemic. I think you could sort of, you know, demand was more predictable, supply was more predictable, your your trading partners were more predictable. Uh, you didn't have all these curveballs like ports, you know, stuff containers getting stuck on ports for weeks at a time, that sort of thing. So how do you, do you think that's a, do you think technology can help solve a lot of those problems? Like the, uh, the challenges that you, you've talked about so far? Yes, but I think it requires more collaboration. And I think from not just from the people stand or not just from the technology standpoint, but from the people standpoint, um, because what I see, especially at a lot of like the higher executive level is that they are buying the fancy, the, the, the shiny object syndrome. They're buying the fancy software thinking it's going to solve all of their problems. But in reality, it's because they didn't have the conversation with the end of the trenches employees of the people who are using that software every day, that they didn't have that conversation ahead of time. They didn't have that, you know, an implement implementation conversation with those, you know, I, I'll use freight brokers, for example, when we, as a company years ago, when we made the decision to switch TMS providers, it was frankly a shit show. And it was one of those things where the TMS did not have the capabilities to provide accounting data. Uh, the accounting department relies on, you know, knowing which companies are have really good credit, knowing which companies, you know, that that you can extend the, you know, the billing date out, which which companies that need to prepay, um, which companies that need to pay within 30 days. Um, a, a lot of those components did not exist in this TMS. And so for a lot of folks, it just put a, a strain on the entire accounting department. The brokers who are actually using and booking the freight on the platform were just miserable. They went from booking something like 100 loads a day to a little over 40. And so that's a big, that has a lot of downstream effects. And it was um, probably ultimately one of the decisions that led to the ultimate you know, collapse of the business. You know, We were an asset-based company and being an asset-based company, a lot of companies know, especially if you run trucks, that if you have a truck go down, you know, that that's a probably a $50,000 part. Um, you're losing the revenue on that truck if it was running properly. Um, so you're 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 facing the downtime costs. You're facing the the repair costs, and then you're you're not really using that to the best of your advantage. So for a lot of these different things, they can add up really quickly. And technology in the space is not cheap. 
And so when you're devoting a budget and a certain amount of time, I think that that's where a lot of the gaps are happening in this space is that you're not talking to the folks who are actually going to be using the software before you make that purchase. And you need to know how your folks are getting the job done today and where it can be optimized. Because ultimately, if you do create that conversation and you have those conversations, then you know what's, what steps in the process that you can actually, actually optimize, that you can automate. Um, a lot of times these, these freight companies, they'll take somebody right fresh out of college, they'll sit them down at a desk and tell them to make 100 cold calls in a day. And that has been the business model, I think, for a lot of you know, talking about freight brokerages in, in particular here, but that's been the business model, I think, for a lot of these companies for years. And only now with the adoption of more technology and the adoption of more communication strategies, are they now seeing the value and making sure that those all operate in a cohesive environment, in a circular environment, because if they don't, then if one of those components goes down, it could be the detriment and could be the loss of your business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's well, well said for sure. We're here with Blythe Bremleave talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. We have a lot more questions to get to still, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. My name is Eric Kimberling. New episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the audio podcast platforms. Be sure to check us out there. We are in the midst of a discussion here with Blythe Bremleave talking about the future of supply chain management and logistics. I wanted to pull up a comment here uh, from Anders. Here it is from Anders Green on LinkedIn. He says he can, can he can confirm we're still getting wood pallets all the time. Once we get up to one to 200, we post on Craigslist for folks to come and get them at no cost. At least 25% of them go to regular people who are doing bonfires or home projects. <laughs> so, <Yes. laughs> so if you need pallets, um, just look up Andrews Green on LinkedIn and uh, connect with him there. And it sounds like he might be able to get you some pallets. Uh, so it's interesting <laughs> to hear that hear that data point or sort of validation of what we were talking about earlier. I, I remember trying to because we were doing an office remodel at one point. And we, you know, in especially with a lot of these freight brokerage floors, um, the the desk and the floor environment is really important to have a cool look to it. And so I proposed to my boss that we have pallet desk, and he laughed me out of <laughs> the business. <laughs> And I thought and, it would just be fight. so cool have have different pallet stacks, and then you put a piece of glass on top of them. Um, I didn't really quite think it through, you know, if it went, the amount of times that brokers slam their phones down. I imagine that would probably be a mess. But I thought it looked really cool. So there's pallets are are multifunctional. They can be furniture. They can be bonfire wood. They can ship your goods. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of things you can do with a pallet. Multi-purpose for sure, clearly, <laughs> and bonfires, of course. <laughs> 
And then uh, this is an interesting comment uh, from Sam Graham again. And, and actually, this, I think, points to an even bigger topic of discussion here. Maybe I'll, I'll spin this into a question. Uh, but Sam says, some companies are forecasting demand at the wrong level of the bill of material. And companies are also sometimes stock at the wrong level. So they're, so they're forecasting at the wrong level. And so I think it, it sort of touches on really the, the sorts of changes that the supply chain and partners within the supply chain are going through in terms of technology, but also just rethinking how they do business and how they go about forecasting or how they go about, um, you know, building uh, safety stock or whatever they, whatever it is. I mean, I think companies have to really rethink their processes and the behaviors and the technologies uh, that maybe challenge the status quo of how things had worked for those 30 years of, you know, smoothly running global supply chains. Now, all of a sudden, you have to kind of rethink some of those things. Is that something you're saying as well? Yeah, because I think for a lot of companies, the supply chain, you know, uh, executive or the person in charge of managing the flow of your goods uh, never had a seat in the boardroom or never had a seat at the, you know, the executive meeting each week. Now they have a seat at those meetings. And so they can share what they're finding and what they're seeing, because like I said, it, it affects you know, up to 40% of your overall revenue is going towards transportation costs. So why wouldn't you, you know, try to find ways to optimize that process? And I, I, I think for, you know, a lot of these companies, what we're seeing now is that it, you have some of the smartest minds and some of the brightest minds that are trying to predict what consumer behavior is going to do. And in reality, we really don't know. You know, we're, we're two years, quote unquote, or really only even a few months removed from the, the, the biggest shakeup in our consumer behavior patterns. You know, are we working from home? Are we traveling? Are we flying more? Are we driving more? Um, and so a lot of those consumer purchases that were made a year ago, a lot of those purchases are still sitting in, or not from the consumer side of things, but from the business side of things. A lot of those shipments are still sitting in a warehouse, you know, waiting to be used. I, I think I read that last year, you know, the, the container ships that were waiting to dock and waiting to, to, to come to port or come to call were sitting out there for so long that Halloween and Christmas shipments weren't being offloaded until January of this year. And so it's incredible to think about how all that merch has to go somewhere. So either you're liquidating it or you're storing it and waiting for this upcoming season. And so I think for, for a lot of companies, they're going to start Storage is already incredibly difficult to to source and to find right now. So I, I, you know, speaking from the United States perspective, um, but I think it's going to be interesting that after this holiday season, what those purchasing decisions look like, because we're still dealing with warehouses that are overfilled, stored to capacity, and what does that consumer purchasing behavior look like for this upcoming holiday season? especially as, you know, people are starting to, to get more out into the world, or maybe they're not getting back out into the world. Maybe they're, they're you know, trying to save money. A recession is here. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, different things going on in the consumer area that, you know, some of the smartest people on the planet are trying to figure out where this is going. And we really have no idea because we're going off of, you know, un, unforeseen territory. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Makes total sense. And here's a Here's a question that I find interesting too. There's actually a couple questions sort of related to this one that have come from the audience. And this one is from uh, Chacha on YouTube asks, I think the question was, can we predict uncertainties like port shutdowns, container load delays, et cetera? Um, and apparently I, I think they had asked the question earlier and we didn't get to it, but um, what can, can organizations realistically, yeah, especially, and I guess here's where I struggle with supply chain management in general. So you had, you had sort of the um, sort of the extreme impact 
that the pandemic had on supply chain management a couple years ago. And now it's sort of like it's sort of settling into something more longer term, it seems like. But it's still changing. You know, it's like you, you can't just respond and try to maybe overcorrect from what we needed two years ago, right when the pandemic first happened. But can organizations realistically start to do you see organizations getting a better handle on anticipating some of these disruptions a little bit better and using data and better processes or diversifying their their vendor partners like you mentioned before are you seeing any of this have a material impact on organizations just getting better at anticipating those those challenges anticipating them is always going to be a challenge because of the way of the nature that the US supply chain is structured you know i mentioned earlier that every aspect of our industry works in a silo so you have you know port workers on the west coast that are unionized you have a lot of the rail networks that are unionized um, a lot of trucking companies are not unionized. A lot of warehouses are not unionized. I can't think of one, you know, sort of off the top of my head. And so what you have is a situation where you're trying to predict things that, you know, have unpredictable components to them. You know, whether there's the Port of Oakland that, you know, had their um, the drivers went on strike for at the, the Port of Oakland. And so none of the drivers are, are going in and none of the owner operators are going in and out. But the Port Union workers or the Port Union drivers are still showing up to work. So you have a situation like that in, in particular where you maybe can predict that, hey, they're they're going to have a protest and they're going to shut down for a week. But so that's up to you to be paying attention to the news, to be able to find, to diversify your solutions, to diversify your different offerings. And what does that take? More networking, more communication. You have to communicate back to your customer what the hell is just going on. And you're trying to figure it all out in, you know, in a very small amount of time. So while we can, you know, react I think that that's where, you know, the the majority of this industry is evolving is that we're trying to get to a proactive place, but none of the components really exist to make it as, you know, proactive as we would like. Um, mm. So that's where the building the communications and diversifying your offerings really comes into play. I, I was interviewing with um, one woman who's a freight forwarder, and she was responsible for getting her customers items into port and ultimately getting them from the port to the porch. And because of the back, uh, because of the backlog on the West Coast ports, she actually rerouted the entire shipment to a port in like northeastern Canada. And so that was um, obviously a little bit longer of a trek that her customer wanted to, to have for the shipment of goods. But ultimately, they ended up getting offloaded much quicker than if she were to just kind of wait it out on the West Coast. And so I think that those are you have to be creative. You have to think outside of the box, you know, working in logistics and supply chain, you have to have your main ethos is to be a problem solver. And if you're not working to solve those problems, we can't forecast every problem that's going to that's going to arise. Ultimately, it's up to you to be able to have to build those different solutions and to see trends and to build those solutions based off of those trends. And if, you know, X, Y, Z happens at this port, which I think they might because they just passed this law, then we need to be able to have backup solutions in case, you know, our freight needs to be moved to the East Coast or moved to the Gulf or moved to another part of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's. That's super interesting, and it and it reminds me of certain types of technology that's out there now that um, you know I, I've learned more about over the last couple of years, like it, like technologies that'll help you collect data points, not internal supply chain data points, but macro and, and external data points about like the the financial viability of a supply chain provider. Or you mentioned union union versus non unionized. It's fairly safe to assume that a union sort of shop might be a higher risk. Of, of disruption than one that's non-unionized. 
Um, certainly cost, you know, we have always looked at cost and quality. I suppose that's always been a pretty common uh, set of criteria, but that's still in there as well. Um, that's more of that internal uh, metric. But it, it seems like organizations now are having to be smarter about just thinking about where's the risk. Do we have too much concentration of risk geographically in an area where there's geopolitical risk or uh, weather related risk, that sort of thing? It seems like, you know, we just need to get smarter as organizations and use the tools and data around us, uh, maybe in different ways to, to really get a handle on on being as accurate as possible in our forecasts. And I think for a lot of these these data tools too, it's it's not just, you know, the that they're a data solution. It's where are they getting their data from? Who are their data partners? A lot of these different solutions, they they have to, especially for, from a data perspective, they have to partner with the companies that are actually moving the freight in order to get access to that data. And a lot of times these companies don't want to share their proprietary data. So you're 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 operating off of a limited pool of sources. And then once you have that data, how do you make it actionable? And I think for a lot of companies, that's where the the a bigger problem is starting to arise is that, yes, we have all of these tools and these solutions and all of this data, but how, the, how do we make it actionable? How do we actually do something with all of the information that we have at hand? Because it's not just, as you mentioned, it's not just from the, the technology side of things, but it's also from geopolitical risk and what's going on in the world. We have to pay attention to all of these different news sources and then be able to act proactive or I mean, I guess reactively based on all of those different information points in order to be proactive for our customers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's well said for sure. Um, what, um, what, so you touched on this a little bit, but maybe I'll ask it more explicitly so we can kind of focus on this, this thread a bit, but a, a lot of your, you've talked about how a lot of your focus with digital dispatch is on helping uh, logistics providers market themselves more, more effectively. Um, why is this so important to in, in the world of supply chain and logistics? Why is this focus on marketing? Why why is that so important? Well, really, you have the opportunity to be a big fish in a little pond, and it feels weird calling you know supply chain and logistics multi trillion dollar industry that powers the entire globe. Um, it feels weird calling that a small pond, right? But there. Right frankly, just aren't that many people creating content in this industry specific to what your you know role and responsibilities and what your company provides. And so I think that there's just a massive opportunity. And we've kind of touched on this earlier, where a lot of these companies, you know, they they were reliant on going to the conferences, going to the trade shows, and being able to make those connections and have those conversations one on, in a one on one environment. But now, you know, with with social media, for example, you have the opportunity to have have a keynote speak or have a, a keynote opportunity to be able to speak on the topic that you are passionate about every single day, 24 hours a day, and it works for you 24 hours a day. And so what we're seeing now is more companies are starting to recognize the strength in talking about their businesses, the the things that they care about that are, you know, sort of adjacent to their business, um, all of these different aspects that, you know, you would typically put on your website or you would typically put in a brochure and maybe talk about it at a conference. Now you have the ability to have that keynote stage every single day. And so only a limited amount of companies are actually partaking in this. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, especially as more media companies are growing in this space. And so when you have more media companies, you're you're getting asked to go on more podcasts, you're getting asked to go on more interviews, you're digesting more content from this space. And so if you're looking around and you're seeing what's going on, 
it, I mean, it just makes perfect sense to me of why you would need to want to be in, in front of that stage. You want to be on that stage. You want to be screaming from the mountaintop of the solutions that your business provides. And I just think that it's such a, an incredibly, I would say, slow to adopt in this industry. Um, it's been a massive opportunity for a while now. It still is. And for the foreseeable future. As long as we're putting our attention online, um, there's a there's an opportunity for you to capture that attention and ultimately, you know, bring that person to be, become more aware about you as a person, what you care about, what your business problems solve, and then that way, when they come to the buying decision, they know who you are, they know the the solutions that you provide, and they will come to you before they ever go search for a competitor in Google, before they ever send out an RFP. Um, they come to you because they know what you stand for. Because at the end of the day, people do business with people. And we can have all of this technology and all this different functionality and all this data to sort of parse through. Can I trust you with my freight? That is the ultimate decision that people are making every single day of the week. Can I trust you that you, if you know stuff hits the fan, that you're going to figure out a way to problem solve it? And ultimately, social media gives you the advantage to be able to proclaim that message of how you handle difficulties, how you handle problems, and communicate that effectively to an audience that may not be ready to buy now and get your services now, but they will be over time, especially if you educate them over time. You know, anywhere from, I think a, a lot of folks, they, they try to get started on LinkedIn. I mean, you know, I'm gonna post every day on LinkedIn for two months. And then they quit LinkedIn after two months and two leads. And it's like, no, you're, you're just barely getting started. Think about yeah. it as, you know, a content snowball effect, where if you consistently put your message out there, you are marketing yourself to 95% of the business world that isn't ready to buy. So that when they do become part of that 5% that they are ready to buy, you win before that person ever gets to Google. That's the ethos of sort of the communication strategy that I preach, that I follow myself, um, and that I help other companies refine and define. Um, and that it all really routes back to your website. Um, do you have a way to capture attention through social media? And then do you have a way to, or to create that attention, create that demand for your skills and services on social media? And then do you have a way to capture that attention? So are you booking meetings on your site? Or do you have a way for people to request a quote to contact you? Um, I, I'm very, very passionate about building on land that you own. So your website, your podcast, your email list, or and also land that you rent. So social media, for example. Um, I think you have to have both of those in today's world. And there's only a small amount, a small percentage. I, I would say 5% maybe of companies, of supply chain and logistics companies that are taking advantage of the everyday keynote that you can give. And I think 5% is being too generous. Yeah. Well, and it's such a critical time for supply chain providers too, because it is a time where I think it's somewhat unprecedented where you have a lot of organizations that are rethinking and replanning, redesigning their supply chains, which inherently suggests that there could be different partners or new partners entering the equation that people are out there looking for alternatives to what is broken. And so it's a great opportunity for these organizations to be top of mind, you know, when they already, when, when their customers are ready to make that sort of a decision for sure. Um, what, so just sort of, sort of a, a capstone question sort of tie this all together, everything we've talked about so far, what, um, what advice would you give to an organization that's about to embark on 
a supply chain improvement initiative? Like any any kind of closing summary words of advice to an organization that's really trying to rethink their supply chain and being better at supply chain management? I think that the most underutilized aspect of this would be having conversations with your customers. That is the driver of every other aspect or should be the driver of every other aspect of your business. The kind of uh, how you communicate to future prospects would rely off of those conversations with your customers, finding out those trigger points of what made them pick up the phone and call you, what made them come to your site and convert to become a lead. Um, the conversations with your customers is something that I don't think happens. It happens a lot from a transactional standpoint, you know, where is my freight going? Um, you know, how, you know, trying to, to source different components, procurement. Um, a lot of those conversations are transactional in that sense, but they're not at a deeper level. How are you making the lives of your customers better on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? And then how can you take those conversations and then package them in a way that you can either use that insight, use that market research to communicate to other like-minded businesses that are in their same area or in their same field or commodity, and then using those conversations in order to market the rest of your business. Because from customer conversations, you can just really just drive so much more. And I'm not just talking about surveys, you know, that you send out in an email and you have somebody fill out, you know, a 20 question survey. Those are important for getting a massive amount of information, but prioritizing having, you know, at least weekly conversations with your customers, maybe monthly if their time, you know, is, is a little limited to have a weekly conversation, but having those separate conversations that are separate from the transactional conversations that you're having to go in on a much deeper level. And even if, I mean, if you wanted to take it even a step further, um, you know, having like a customer interview series where you turn that into content and then you mm -hmm. have that content and you have your customer on camera talking about how your solution helps them. That is a gold mine for your marketing. Now you know the exact verbiage of what your customer is using, not the jargon that you use day in and day out with your team and your employees, because for a lot of companies, our jargon is foreign to them. You might, might as well be speaking a, a, you know, a different language. Um, but now with, because of those customer conversations, you know, the exact verbiage of what they're using. So then you can use that exact verbiage to talk to your other customers, to talk to your prospects, to convey that messaging and all of your marketing. It really has just an incredible downstream effect by simply having those in-depth conversations with your customers. And I love how you gave an, an answer to my question and then you tied it back to marketing. That was, that was brilliant. So <laughs> it, it, it all, it all ties back to, and you're right. It does tie together. It's a great idea. If you're listening to your customers and learning what their needs are and how you can build your supply chain in a way that's going to better meet the needs of the customers. And at the same time, while you're at it, creating marketing content, that's going to allow you to market yourself uh, to your, to your potential customers. That's, that's even better. It's really firsthand market research because a lot of this market research just doesn't exist unless you, you know, maybe, you know, trust the the research reports that come out of like Gartner or McKinsey, those, those types of studies. But there's no better case study than talking to the people that you're already working with. I mean, yeah. you're, you're going to you're going to drive so much value and so much information from those conversations and the incredible downstream effects that it has um, will, will likely set your business up for success for years to come. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. Thank you, Blythe. That was a great conversation. A lot of really interesting stuff and uh, operationally, marketing-wise, technology-wise, covered a lot of ground in that discussion. Um, so much so that we're going to unpack that a bit more and, and build on some of the themes from that discussion. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. We just had our, our guest, Blythe Brumleaf, on the show talking about the future of supply chain management. What were some of your thoughts of, from that discussion, Tyler? Well, first of all, what an excellent discussion, um, both on you know your guys' side and then in the comments as well. So thank you to everyone who engaged in that. Um, just as a reminder, we do go back and check those comments. Um, Eric answers questions, so do I. So um, feel free if you are watching it on, on any page to go ahead and, and comment on that platform. But I mean, obviously, I was very excited about this because it comes back to what I get to do here on a day-to-day -day basis at third stage and really just join that conversation. And it, I think it's really refreshing to see that perspective of that concept of a digital handshake, if you will, or the importance of putting out content in your specific area. I actually got messages on LinkedIn after the live stream of people saying, wow, I'm really excited to engage in more video production content or podcasts or those types of things. So the message was, uh, was definitely impactful in that conversation. Um, I wondered if I might ask you, when it comes to the digital networking that we were kind of forced into that transformation with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, face-to-face -face, um, conferences went away a lot of the time for a while and, and people networked on digital platforms, whether you're talking about LinkedIn, putting out YouTubes, even on TikTok, we get, you know, a lot of networking now we've seen um, some traction there. Do you think that how would you, as a business owner, engage in both a, a networking digital handshake, but also follow that up with an in-person connection? Because I think, especially in, in your overall approach, that's still really important in creating that customer and client relationship. Yeah, well, you know, I think that the in-person connection is important and, um, you know, the digital handshake might be the place to start, but at some point, in, in a lot of industries, especially in ours in consulting, uh, having that in-person connection is important too. So um, a lot of times it can be anything from in-person events, which we, we up until the pandemic had hosted frequently and not so much since, but we'll get back to that eventually. Um, but also just meeting with, with uh, clients and potential clients one-on-one, -on -one, you know, in person, that's been a, a sort of a next 
evolution in moving from a digital handshake when a client's first thinking of working with us to getting to know them in person, um, either once they become a client or even as part of their decision-making process. Absolutely. And, um, you know, fostering that relationship can be important in both that hybrid approach, whether it is, um, you know, that personalization can still happen in a remote environment through things that might be more intimate, like phone calls. For example, a lot of times emails go a long way, but calling someone on the phone has evolved into something that is more personal and, you know, a thoughtful approach sometimes. So I think that there's ways to, uh, to do that in, in both a in-person and digital environment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I loved the conversation around kind of the supply chain, the state of the supply chain, if you will, um, and learning about all of these different creativity pieces to getting where you need to be as a business, whether you're buying a pallet company or, um, you know, sourcing chips domestically, manufacturing chips domestically um, as well. And of course, if we don't say Elon Musk in an episode, it wouldn't be ground control. So obviously we need to you know, call him out for that as that's something that he's kind of pioneered with Tesla and understanding um, what that looks like as far as lithium batteries specifically. I wonder if it if it is something that you typically as an organization aren't always on the creative side of trying to figure out the next steps. What is some exercises you can go through with your supply chain to make it more flexible and risk adverse if that is something that happens within your industry, whether it's a, a labor shortage, uh, a logistical issue? you know, over surplus of inventory, what can you do to kind of set the stage to be reactive? Well, a lot of it is, is having the data and information you need to, to react and to ideally get to more of a proactive maneuvering and strategic planning for your supply chain. So, you know, looking outside the realm of what historically had been the focus of supply chain management, KPIs and metrics, which used to be, you know, lead time, cost, quality, which are still important, but now you've got to add other dimensions, um, risk-related dimensions, things like uh, potential geopolitical disruptions, war, um, port issues. You know, if you if you know, I, I know Blythe was talking about the the ports in Los Angeles and how Los Angeles, like many other ports throughout the world, were experiencing pretty significant uh, backlogs. So just, you know, having those data points and the technologies to provide those insights, I think that's that's an important first step. And you just really have to rethink your priorities in your supply chain as well. And how do you create that um, that cha- that culture of change within your supply chain team? You know, we, we see kind of historically and stereotypically, honestly, that operational pers- per, um, professionals can kind of be very straight laced because they're very they're process oriented, which is their job. So that's a great thing. But how do you um, create that culture that might be able to shift uh, in these these um, these situations in which they need to kind of react to the marketplace or whatever is happening in their industry? Yeah, well, again, I think having the information is, is one step, but then also just educating and teaching the humans, the, the employees within your organization to you know, how to use that information, how to, how to think differently about the supply chain. It's, it's really a, it's a cultural and mindset shift that you, you really need to lead your, your organization through. And so that's, um, you know, that's, that's the way I would approach it is looking at all the different dimensions of that, of that change, you know, on the people process and technology side of it. 
Absolutely. And I loved your conversation around um, having that conversation with customers and that kind of content development work stream. I wonder if you might be able to do that internally when you're looking at uh, creating a culture shift with employees as well, you know, and in an internal communications or even internal marketing standpoint to ensure that you're surfacing any of these opportunities or you're promoting and supporting the analyzation of, of these supply chain data points. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that that is something that, that organizations need to do or should do. Um, we had one, we actually had, uh, interestingly and coincidentally, we have, we had one uh, company that reached out to us recently and it's not a client of ours. It's just an organization that had recently gone through digital transformation and they wanted their CIO to be on this podcast. Um, and he still maybe we're, we're sort of vetting if it's a good fit or not. But um, they reached out to us and said, hey, can we have, have him on the podcast? Partly because we want to share some of our lessons and best practices, but also partly because we want to do sort of a it's 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 part of a, an internal marketing and PR campaign to get employees excited about the, the project and where they're headed and that sort of thing. So I thought it was really interesting that um, organizations, some organizations are thinking that way. They're thinking about not just. Um, you know, the outwardly focused side of things and what the impact is to suppliers and customers and things like that. But also when they're going through digital transformations or supply chain improvement initiatives, um, they're looking at, you know, how, to, how can we market that and, and bring people internally along for the ride as well, which is obviously very important. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Uh, and definitely just showcases having that content, whether it is you did a, a very, um, you know, professional live stream or you just jump on, you know, the, the video on your computer or your phone and have an authentic conversation. You're, there's platforms that consume both of those types of polished versus more authentic and conversational content production and assets. So I think that that's really interesting, whether using that externally or internally, having it is the first step um, and creating it is the first step. And both you and I as content creators know that it's it's not perfection. <laughs> Our videographer is a genius when it comes to editing out all of the things that, you know, the mistakes we made. So there's no um, perfection needed to kind of join that conversation or, or produce that, that type of content. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have to um, ping Blythe to see if she's going to answer my climate change question because I'm not, not mad at you for, asking that, but I actually am because I'm really interested in how that, um, especially in the maritime industry, how that kind of affects that because it, it's a completely different um, way of thinking. But I think it goes along with her answer and recommendation to just flexibility. You know, she mentioned a lot of different companies that bought their own barge and or went to a completely different port on a completely different side of a, a continent right? Those are big changes, but they gave the business the opportunity to take control or have at least some influence on their supply chain internally, which I think is so important, not only from a data perspective, but creating action steps out of that data, you know, creating or breaking down barriers that you might see from any sort of bottleneck now is, is a real thing that businesses can engage in as far as this strategic approach to supply chain management. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, I meant to uh, 
get to your question. Sure. I saw your question about supply sure. chain. <laughs> I got the one of your questions, just not that one. But actually, that wasn't what I really wanted to get to, uh, but we ran out of time, unfortunately. But uh, that that was that is an interesting one. We didn't even touch on the whole uh, climate change, and I and I think um, somewhere on LinkedIn, someone commented on, on another unrelated post uh, talking about that too. You know how how can supply chains uh, track climate? impacts in a way that's going to be uh, they're coming out more from a compliance perspective being compliant with exactly. local regulations and things of that nature so even if you whether you agree or disagree with with uh, the organizational role in uh, contributing to climate change initiatives whether you, you like it or not I mean that's sort of where a lot of governments throughout the world are headed in terms of regulations and that matters so you, you're going to have to get to figure that out um, so I think that's a, it's a great point and something that that could be a whole separate, that could be a whole separate thread or a topic of a focus for sure. Yeah. Supply chain compliance. We'll have to see if maybe we can um, get a collaboration on TikTok to see if we can do something that we put out to our audience um, that she answers that in kind of a short form. And I loved your idea of, of going back and answering all of those questions in a short form video, because I think it's a great opportunity uh, for everyone else to join the conversation. They can do the same. It's not, you know, something that, is, is just uh, related to third stage, joining that conversation and helping businesses optimize all areas of their operations and technology is something that I think anyone in our audience is committed to helping and doing. So room for a lot of people in that conversation, but what a great live stream, um, such great information. I do hope that you guys do a part two because I think everyone really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to have her back on the show. That was, that was super interesting and uh yeah, it was very, very good stuff and a lot we didn't get to. So uh, it was a lot more we could cover. So, um, yeah, thanks for everyone for the great questions on there, including you, Kyler. Sorry I didn't get to your your uh, climate change question. We'll definitely get to it next time. Um, <laughs> no, so good. no worries. I only asked about 4,000 questions on this. <laughs> so no, no. <laughs> That's good, though. We need that. Uh, the the Not the cheerleading, but the, um, the engagement, you know, the, the behind the scenes engagement. It always helps in those those uh, live stream situations. Um, well, good. Well, thanks for uh, thank you again to Blythe for being on the show and to the great questions we got from the audience. We're going to shift gears and bring on our next guest, um, who's Dave Beldick, a senior manager at Third Stage Consulting. Uh, unlike Blythe, he has been on the show before. Um, in this particular clip, we're going to play for you is from our recent Stratosphere conference, where Dave gives a presentation about operational excellence. So we're kind of continuing with that operation supply chain theme here uh, on this episode, and going to dive even more into it with Dave. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Dave Bill Dick on the show to talk about operational excellence. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. My 
Derek Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and we are excited for our next guest. We're going to actually play you a clip of this guest, uh, Dave Beldick, who's a senior manager at Third Stage Consulting. And he gave a recent presentation at one of our online Stratosphere events, which you can find the recordings. Uh, you can go stream the recordings of all these events that you may have missed just by going to stratosphere2022.com. And you can find this along with all the other uh, presentations that were that have been given in that online event. Um, but this particular one is focused on operational excellence and really what how you can achieve operational excellence as part of your digital transformation. And so why don't we go ahead and roll the clip and then we'll uh, come back with some some uh, follow up discussions as well. Uh, here's Dave Beldick talking about operational excellence. My name is Adam Cheatham. I'm a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage Consulting Group. And we are really looking forward to uh, sharing more of our thoughts on, on this topic. So. Um, um, as, as we do this, we'll introduce uh, Dave Beldick, of course. Dave, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Dave Beldick. Uh, um, I've been, uh, let's see, I've probably got about 30 years of industry experience and, and uh, uh, a lot of experience in the ERP space, about 20 years of implementation and operation experience there, as well as about five years of continuous improvement stuff. So uh, to me, the, the business process management and continuous improvement kind of go hand in hand. It's a pretty good, pretty good marriage there. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, you know, Dave and I, I have worked together on, on a number of these types of projects, so we're glad, glad to have him here. Um, as as we're jumping in, you know, Dave, I, I figure I'll give you the, the first crack at um, offering a definition of operational excellence and or business process management. What do those what do those topics mean to you? Well, you, you know, when I talk about business process management, I, I can remember it back, you know, 20 years ago. When, when people talked about business process management. And, and back then, it was more about understanding your processes and dissecting them and, and, and really just being able to, to apply some of the continuous improvement activities to, to, you know, where you have a particular process step that's giving you problem and, and understand what, what is it that's do root cause analysis and that sort of thing and, and be able to dive into it and, and, and focus on it. But it was, today it's, it's a little different. It's all that. But there's there's much more of an automation need to it. There's much more just the expectation that you're looking toward. How do I automate this step? How do I make it touchless? And that's probably the big difference between today and and, and years ago is that uh, uh, you know the business process management is how do I make my processes as efficient as they can be, and and automate it as much as they can be. Um, and operational excellence. Operational excellence is it's it's sort of a I guess it's kind of a philosophy, if you will. It's kind of, it's kind of like, it's almost got that philosophical feel like continuous improvement. Um, uh, and business process management is the means to achieve operational excellence. That's kind of how I think of the two. Okay, that's a, that's a great philosophy that business process management is, is the road to achieving operational excellence or continuous improvement, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, which, which kind of gives me a, um, a thought here, like it's, you know, um, when you start thinking about projects and, and those types of topics, you know, one of the basic principles is as you have a project, your project should always have a, have an end date, right? So from a perspective <laughs> of operational excellence, um, how do I know I have achieved operational excellence? Is there an end date to that? <laughs> yeah, to me, it's, it's kind of like continuous improvement. It, it's not really an end date. It, you get better and better and better. But there's always something else to go work on. So I don't, I don't think it's an end. I don't, I don't think that it's just, it's, like I said, it's kind of a philosophical thing you drive. And, and uh, uh, the things you worry about today 
are hopefully are a lot more down in the weeds, detailed stuff compared to what you worried about five years ago, you know? So it's, but it, it never ends. You just keep sharpening the pencil and getting better. That seems, seems about right. You know, the, uh, <laughs> we, we refer to three stages of a rocket launch and that third stage being that continuous improvement space where orbit and is a bit more self-sustaining and, and driven towards continuous, um, continuous effortless movement. So, um, how, how do you see and how have you seen in the past technology enable that type of um, operational excellence, not just through the the point of achieving a state where you're in that continuous improvement mode, but also the from a perspective of how it figures into business process management? Well, I think um, you, you see a lot more. There's actually a lot of tools out there now to help with the business process management. And, and they have a lot of commonality in terms of the approach. I mean, you still have to kind of there's a, there is a manual aspect to it to start with. It's kind of mapping your processes and understand the pieces and then and understand the steps along the way and kind of understand the decision points and all that. But mm -hmm. but there's a lot more. Um, like I said, there's a lot more. Um, vendors out there that, that offer tools to help guide you through that process. There's a lot of commonality in how they, in the approaches, but, but the tools differ a little bit. And uh, it, it's, um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's a big thing that's changed a lot is having more automated tools for that. I hear a Brian Sorry about the technical issues, everyone. I've uh, been in here before and it didn't work and my video doesn't seem to be working, but I am here. Uh, my name is Brian Lockruba. I'm a manager at Third Stage. been working in the business process management space for the last uh, 15 years or so, Six Sigma Black Belt, and um, I'll cut right back into the, to the questions from Adam. Let us keep going. Sorry about the delay. Yeah, so so Brian, I was um, I was asking Dave what his thoughts were on operational excellence and um, and whether or not that that has an end date and some of the the more um, continuous improvement oriented things. I'd be I'd be curious to to hear your opinion on on how um, technology factors into business process improvement and and how um, technology factors into achieving operational excellence and continuous improvement. What do you think? Yeah, so I mean, definitely would see operational excellence as a journey. You never, um, well, some organizations may be in better places than others. You're, you're never, uh, it's never about reaching an end state. It's about always uh, aiming for that improvement. And technology can be a big piece of that. It's definitely not the only piece of it, but uh, technology can offer you a lot of benefits in that space. One of the areas that can help with a lot is just being able to give you data and tracking and managing and being able to see the state of your processes. So um, there, and there are a number of different uh, areas of technology, whether it's data captured in an ERP system or a CRM, or whether they're using a business process management system, or uh, even less robust tools for organizations that are just getting started out. Anything that's uh, able to give you some insight into your uh, processes and data around those can be a, a big benefit in helping to know the state of where you're at and uh, aiding you in that continuous improvement journey. Interesting. That's a that's a that's a great take on it. You and you and Dave have two two ends of that conversation where you reference the data that can come from technology and and, and Dave referenced it as a tool. Um, as you're combining these two thought processes, what do you guys think about the the methods and and uh, the madness, if you will, behind using technology to get the right data to improve the right processes? How do I know um, which data to use and, and which tools to bring to the table? Sure. Well, you really need to start um, forgetting 
forgetting the technology because it, it's not a, an end, it's a means to an end, is looking at it from a strategic standpoint is where are you trying to go as an organization? What are the key factors that are going to take you there? So understanding, is it uh, specific processes in support of our customers that we really need to achieve and specific customer goals that you're going after and what's going to help you there? In some cases, it may be really driving towards a technology solution that gives, say, your customers access into and uh, interaction with your processes that you're able to, to help them be an, an active and engaged participant in them. Uh, or you may find that uh, your customers don't want to know what's going on. They just want you to deliver what you need to for them, for example. And then it's really about your own internal excellence and your ability to be efficient and effective in your processes. So it can really vary and it depends a lot on defining first what are your strategic goals around what you're trying to achieve and how do your processes and your technology fit into it. Great. Dave, what do you think about that? Um, I, was, I was reading the uh, the question coming up. We do have a question on, on there as well. But, um, sorry, I was – hit me again. Hit me again. Let's <laughs> go to the question then. Uh, you know, Dom, I appreciate your, your participation in the chat room. Now, Dom's question is, how would a business best approach business process mapping when taking on an SAP S4 HANA project? My experience was the PM on the business side of the S4 HANA uh, 1809 implementation. We did map the as-is processes prior to the SI turning up, but when they got onto the project, they didn't really look uh, uh, or want to engage with those because SAP S4 was all about best practice and fit gap workshops around the S4 process, not the old processes. So uh, what, what do you think about that topic, Dave? Yeah, it's an interesting one, because when you get into these, do I map the as is, there's a lot of different philosophies about that. And I think some people do feel that, you know, it's, it's a waste of time because I'm moving to something bigger and better, and, and I really want to adopt best practice. Um, but I think it's important to understand where your pain points are. And, and what's giving you fits. And I also think it's worth mapping the handoffs. That, to me, that's one of the biggest things. If I was gonna map, and I, and I, I wanted to give mapping the as is a light touch, um, I, would, I would try to map the key handoff things that happen between, between areas. And, and, and the things that happen when things go, when things go wrong, when, when it's not the happy path, but something goes wrong and now I've got to deal with it. Typically, that's where the pain points come into play. That's where the challenges come into play. And that's where you want to make sure, especially if you know you've got something that's giving you fits today, uh, don't assume it's going to magically go away in, in the future. You've got to, you, you got to challenge that and you really have to make sure that you, uh, you ask your system integrator, you know, make sure you identify the pain points. Even if you haven't done the full blown as is mapping, identify your pain points and then make sure that those get addressed. I think that's a key thing. Gotcha. So, you know, that, um, if I were to paraphrase that, would you agree with the idea that, um, your, your current state is still important in your future state? Um, and, and understanding where you are and, and what improvements to target to resolve those pain points is still an important part of a transformation. Yes, but I, I, I do get the point is you can spend an awful lot of time and money doing very detailed maps of the as is. And, and quite frankly, in my experience, 70, 80 percent of that I won't touch again. But that 20 percent, getting the right 20 percent, that's the really important part. And, and I can add to that too, in and I agree with Dave completely there. Uh, when you're looking at how it factors into the system you choose and how that implementation is going to go, the as is is important to have that understanding 
understanding of what that direction needs to be. And it can help you to make that. And it's a key factor in really being able to decide what system is the right fit. And uh, to your point, Dom, SAP S4 HANA is going to be more geared towards there are some specific specific ways of doing things that are meant to happen on that platform. And it, choosing that is going to be um, driving a strategic direction in that implementation that it's going to be more aligned towards you want to do things in the way that SAP is going to do them. And you need to make sure as you're doing that selection that you are there. Uh, whereas other software platforms, say uh, Microsoft Dynamics, may give you a lot more room to be able to make some of those decisions along the way. So doing that as a state and being able to factor that into your business requirements and how you're selecting software helps uh, align your processes with the software that you're going to use and help you get into the right place for selection. Okay, we're playing a clip from Dave Beldick talking about operational excellence. We're going to pick up the clip when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. We're here listening to Dave Beldick give a presentation about operational excellence during digital transformation. So that's uh, when you talk, start talking about software selection, that's another great example of, of uh, a factor in this that can can impact your, your business process management. What, what role does the selection of software play in business process management on the whole and achieving operational excellence? So uh, it's it's going to tie again to the strategic direction you're trying to go and where what are the process goals that you have and how you need to orient them and uh, what are you going to be able to find from a software that's going to do it. So part of it is choosing software within a category that's going to fit to what you want to do. Part of it is also understanding from this perspective of what software you need and what categories. Now, for example, I'm working with a client right now who has a highly customized um, a CRM system that they're using essentially as a CRM and an ERP right now. And they have a disjointed HCM system that's sitting next to that. And so what they have is they've built a lot of their processes around the fact that it is um, their customer system is how they are uh, managing everything that they do and everything flows through that. And they've highly customized it and it's pretty rigid and inflexible at this point. So in their case, it's taking a look at well, we need to look at our, our CRM options, our ERP options, our HCM options, what the add-ons need to be, how the different platforms are going to factor into that. So it's really being able to help them through all of that and to focus that on what are the, what are their key goals around that, which in their case is a, they're a membership-based uh, nonprofit. It's how do you, how do you associate your, uh, support your members as much in engaging in your services and starting from there and, and choosing the technology that's going to help from there and then making the follow-on decisions follow yeah i mean just to add to that i mean i heard i heard brian talk about the add-ons and that sort of thing and to me it's 
it's how do you make the pieces all talk together, right? So that's the important part there. And and, and uh, I think uh, the other key thing is what kind of native workflow is is already uh, in the system and, and, and how well does it talk to external pieces, especially if you're going to do collaboration with, with vendors or, or customers and that sort of thing. So so being able to, to hook the pieces together and get it to talk and be able to add automation uh, components to that, I think that's uh, – you know that's a that's a key part of of, uh, of some of the software selection criteria. Gotcha. And and as we're talking about technology in this process improvement, process management, operational excellence space, you know there there are two different viewpoints on this that um, that kind of predominate. Uh, you know in in the industry, one of them is that technology should drive the process improvements, and the other one is that the business should drive the technology. Uh, what what kind of factors and, and trade-offs do you guys see between those two scenarios where technology is the driver um, versus when the business is the driver? Well, I'll start it. Brian, Brian probably can add to it, but I think mm -hmm. part of the part of the challenge, uh, and it, a lot of it has to do with the culture and experience of the company, right? So, I think when the when the when the business is driving driving the activities, I think you 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 can see where you're struggling and you can, and you can make that incremental change, but sometimes you've got to have someone from the outside tell you about something you never even dreamed was possible, but someone's doing it and it can help you a lot, but you just never even thought to consider it. That's where the, that's where the, that's the other, the flip side where the technology is driving the thing is, you know, suddenly there's, there's something that you weren't aware of that now, could be a game changer for you and you never incrementally you wouldn't sneak up on it you know it's it's that kind of thing so um i don't have a great example of that i've seen some but i can't think of one right now but i mean it, it, it's it that so it does sort of go to me i think both have to play uh to see the, the whole picture yeah i, I agree with you there dave and i would add to that the other consideration you have to think about in this is what is it that makes you unique about an organization whether it's competitive advantage in your industry, whether it's something about your industry that isn't an exact fit to what you're going to see elsewhere, and making sure that you're protecting and focusing on those things is where the business needs to drive the technology and not letting, you know, if there's an industry solution that's a great fit for all of your competitors, but it's going to make you just like them in an area where you can be better than them now by doing something unique, you obviously don't want to make that change just because the technology is going to drive it. But if it's in another area where it's um, a, a basic just operational function that you have to be performing in a unique way just because it's the way you've been doing it over the years and you have an up but you're not really doing anything that needs to be different from anyone else then that's a great opportunity to say you know what we can we can adopt practices that other organizations are using and do that the way the technology is going to drive those processes and not worry about trying to stick to the way we're doing it just because that's what we've done yeah they're they're um, what I've seen so many times with with organizations is that the technology um, was chosen by the business to enable some of these process improvements and and, and drive towards operational excellence. Um, but eventually, the business outgrows the technology, and then the technology becomes the reason why the business can't do things. Um, how do I know when my technology is preventing me from achieving operational excellence? Question, Adam, and it's really important there to be able to uh, take a step back and to really to spend some time into um, 
to mapping your processes into Dave's point earlier. This is where you do want to make sure to take a step into them to start looking at what your handoffs are, to look what you're trying to accomplish with these processes and to get an understanding and really asking a lot of why. You know, having a session like this, mapping a process isn't just about getting the steps captured and on a document. It's about understanding the why behind each of them and what's what's driving doing the things the way that you are, particularly the things that may be unique. So as you start getting into that, if you ask the why question enough, you, you may find people saying, well, we've just been doing it this way because that's what the what the system was designed to do 20 years ago, and, and that's how we make it happen. So you, if you uh, are really focusing on that and um, and driving it towards the, the conversation about what are you trying to achieve for your customers at uh, any given step along the way, what is our how is our technology versus what our people are doing, how are those playing into it, then you can start driving out some answers there. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think the, the why, 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 we talk about, you know, in the continuous improvement space, you talk about the five whys when, you, when you're doing root cause analysis and drilling in deeper. Um, and, and it's the same sort of thing applies here. If I'm trying to automate a step and, and, and I'm struggling to do it, it's the why. Why can, I not, why can I not do this? What is preventing me from doing that? And then as you drill down into that, you'll finally get to a point where, um, you you know you, you can't go any farther without without changing some functionality or capability of your system, uh, and 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 that's when you start when you start to bump up against enough of those, then you know it's time. Uh, but as long as it's as long as it's something that's within your control and you can change, or if you're working with a vendor and and uh, like let's say you've got uh, uh, a vendor who's who's invoicing you and 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 you let's say that you're trying to automate some of the invoicing stuff and and you struggle with with uh, the fact that um, their invoices don't come in with a, with both a, a PO number and a line item and all that stuff. So you work with them to make sure they include a line item in their detail, and, and then then you take that next step. But if you if you you know if you start to to bump up against it from a from a system standpoint where where the system doesn't you no longer have the capability to to um, to take that next automated step, then I think that's when you start to you know when you get enough of those. In, under your belt, it's time to say, okay, we've got to we've got to do something different. Especially, especially if you do in research and you find out that others are doing it, yes. and they're doing it in different systems and 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 having a and, and making great strides in doing it. That's that, that's an indicator that you're uh, you're you're stuck a little bit. Yeah. And why can't I just customize my system some more to to handle that? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Customization. You want that one, Brian? Or you want me to take it? <laughs> you can start it, Dave. Uh, we'll okay. That strong yeah. <laughs> so you know, obviously, so customization. Now, I will say one thing. I, when I talk, when I talk about customization, and when others talk about customization, I hear people say customization, bad word. Never, never, ever do it. And and uh, and what I found is that there's degrees of customization. I would say never, ever change the core code. But you can do some things that'll automate the execution of the core code, so that it, that it simplifies things. And in, in fact, that's a lot of what that's what BPM is all about too. So, um, but the, yeah, when you start trying to do something that the ERP system was not designed to do, and you start to put in put in um, some of that kind of customization, now suddenly, you know, when a when a service pack comes in or, or you're ready to do an upgrade, now it's it's it, you you struggle. Uh, and, and it's almost impossible. And these ERP systems are so highly integrated. You, you push something here and something pops out over there. It, it's, you, you gotta be really careful with that sort of stuff because you can just tie yourself in knots and next thing you know, 
every every up you can't take advantage of, of upgrades because now you've got you're stuck because you've you you boxed yourself into a corner and and so yeah i, I have a softer view of customization than some people but don't touch the core stuff don't touch <laughs> and i i agree dave with the the risks and the challenges associated with customization and that it's a mindset that pretty much any organization going in should anytime you're considering a customization you should look long and hard at that and think it's there's probably good reasons not to do that, and an organization may be more inclined to stick more with that current process. However, I will add that the exception will be, in that case, tying back to what I said earlier, when it is something unique about your business, when it is something very specific to what you do, that a software that may be a great fit in other ways just doesn't do something specific that you absolutely need, and you don't have another option for that. You know, you don't want to change those core capabilities of your business in a way just because the, the software does. So those would be the cases when you do have to consider a customization. But that should give you an idea of how you should really think about those trade-offs. Is it, it needs to be fundamental to who you are as a business. It doesn't just need to be something that you like because it may be a little more efficient or you've had some nice comments from customers here and there. It needs to really be central to what you do. Yeah, that's part of um, that's a that's a great um, great topic. Like from a perspective of being able to prove out business value, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. is it worth it? Is it uh, is it worth it to customize the software? Is it worth worth it to get more software? Is it worth it to get new software? Um, what are some of the factors that you guys would see being involved in being able to tell? Is it worth it to make this business process change? Yeah, and I think you have to look at it first from the perspective of really considering your range of options pretty broadly. So if um, you don't want to limit yourself to just how can I customize the software to fit this or, uh, you know, there are a lot of process levers that you have in play that you can you can look at. So looking at everything throughout your supply chain, everything from where you're receiving information, what you're doing with it, handoffs that you're doing internally, how you're passing on to your customers, you may be able to find where there are things you can make a change to in a different way than what you were envisioning. So you first want to start with really looking across the range of what the options are, and then you can really make it a, a methodical approach towards the, these are the set of options that we do have here. And then you can lay out, you know, customization would be one of those options on the range of um, putting a lot of risk into your long-term maintenance, but having something very specific to what you want to do versus say another change that might require a lot of uh, internal change, in which case you'll want to set up some change management uh, procedures and uh, activities through the course of your implementation to help your people through those or uh, possibly looking at what the impacts are to your customers and maybe you have to do some messaging to them uh, mm -hmm. and support them in a change or do some other trade-offs to be able to enable it for them. So you really need to lay out across a wide range of what the impacts are and be able to take a look at those in a, in a structured approach to say, this is the totality of what we're looking at and how we're, how we're making that change. It can be really an informed decision. Gotcha. And um, and Dave, what do you, from a perspective of the people side of things, and we're, ta we're talking about change and, you know, as you know, change management is near and dear to the hearts of third stage. Um, how, how does the, the people side of change factor into um, operational excellence and business process management when you're trying to decide what it is you should do? Yeah, so so uh, I was kind of, as Brian was talking, I was thinking of an example of something that I, I had done way back when and, and uh, actually does kind of very much get into the people side of things. Um, so maybe I'll kind of say the example. There, there was a debate about a particular type of customization, and and this these folks, the, the CSRs were were doing some. Um, it was 
something where they had a customer consignment and every month or every actually every week they would they would create a customer consignment bill and they would have hundreds of batches and all the batches were, were all different different weights and stuff like that and they and they had this you know that the, the in, out of the box it was you don't need any customization to do that it what it was what they were doing was control c control v batch number control c <laughs> control v uh weight and and they were doing this hundreds of things and and they almost never got it right from the get-go and and where they found out it was wrong was when they went to post it and and it was just driving folks nuts it was taking hours they were getting made mistakes everybody was frustrated and and the, the cool thing about this one is this the rules were very simple so every time they consumed the batch they consumed the entire batch so it was very easy to to write a, a a simple routine that would do that would would grab the batch number and then be basically presented the inventory and said put it and put a little checkbox next to it you got i want this one this one this one and this one press a button it always got the batch right it always got the amount right and it always posted right after that and it took about 10 minutes to do what was taking them hours that is to me is good kind of customization it's not truly customization i didn't change any core functionality whatsoever had a big impact on the people uh they they the the morale was suddenly just turned on a dime and 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 so when you talk about the chain side of things listen to the people they they'll tell you where the pain points are uh and it's not just grumbling um but you can't have that we shall not have any customization hat You've got to think about it. Is there is there a reasonable way to do this that's low risk, achieves you know either either great reduction in errors or great reduction in in, in effort, um, and if you can do both errors and effort, great. You know, so so kind of you, you kind of have to balance those things. You know, the the more pain there is, the more the more uh, likely it is that there's something you can do about it. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, great topic to expand upon, and and you know as, as you start thinking about how you change technology and how it is you implement a piece of technology to achieve some of those goals. Uh, you know, we had some questions yesterday regarding how to ensure operations are ready for that go live, whether it be a, a a new change that's being just rolled out to an existing system or a whole new upgrade or a, a brand new implementation. How do you make sure that your operations are ready for that? So, I, you know, there's a couple of pieces of this. One uh, obvious one is just from the testing side of things and just making sure that you validated the system is doing what it needs to. But I think from a more uh, taking a look at it from that people perspective and how we look at it, there's a, a much broader range of activities in terms of um, you could have the system work fine, but people may not be aligned within their day-to-day -day jobs of how they're actually gonna go about and utilize that. So that's where you have a, a uh, much different challenge. And it's one that you're often, it's not necessarily the role of your system integrator who's developing the technology for you to uh, be that in depth with what your people are doing and how they're executing their processes on a day-to-day -day basis, even with things that aren't tied into that system they're implementing. So what you need to have there is a lot of preparation as you're identifying what these changes are. And this, this taps into what we were talking about earlier with as-is process maps. As, as you're identifying those changes, you need to know enough about what the current state is to be able to know what the nature of what your future state is doing to, to change your processes and to change the way your people work. So you wanna be tracking what those major changes are, what the things are where people are going to have to adapt their behavior. Uh, you wanna have some kind of change impact analysis that you're going through in your implementation process and uh, mm -hmm. that you have an action plan around each of those, that you're taking steps to um, 
change the procedures, help with the training and communication around all of it, and make sure that people know what it is they need to do on day one, and that they've really been able to vet out those things and work through them with you. Right, and and to add to that a little bit, I think I think the thing that I like I, I like what you said, Brian, about making sure you've got the testing and the scenarios and all that stuff played out. Uh, I do believe in real life scenarios. I mean, if if you if you're like this thing with the the uh, the customer consignment piece, if you know the way it was tested when that was done was, uh, you know, let's 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 bring up the re let's bring up the transaction and let's do a control C, control V, and oh, lo and behold, it works great. Just do that a hundred times, you'll be good to go. And of course, that didn't work. So if you're going to do, uh, I, I definitely believe you should do as realistic scenarios as you can. We should have tested a, a hundred line item. We should have done that. Uh, I think anytime you physically touch product. Uh, where, where it involves, you know, something going on in the warehouse or something, you know, in the manufacturing space where I'm going to integrate with a machine to, to pull some information, do it, D test it. D don't, don't just hand wave your way through that. Don't do a conference room test for those kind of things. You've got to take the real world into, into account. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen things that you, that unfortunately some got discovered after go live where they had to kind of shut down and rearrange the warehouse and just stuff like that because they couldn't do what they thought they could do. What looked fine on paper didn't work in the real world. So you, you really have got to challenge yourself to, to push, push the envelope, but all of those things that really have, you know, where there might be some physical limitations, you need to find that out well before go live, not, not, not during go live. Okay. We're playing a clip from Dave Belvick talking about operational excellence. We're gonna pick up the clip when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. We're here listening to Dave Beldick give a presentation about operational excellence during digital transformation. When is you're considering that, how do you know the um, to what extent to cover edge cases, exception paths, and stuff like that outside of the happy path? How do I how do I know how far down to go with those those scenarios and those use cases that are exceptions rather than uh, rather than the happy path? And and how do I factor those into our our operational excellence and business process management tactics? Yeah. I can start, Brian, and then you can yeah. chime in. I think when you're doing business process management, one of the things you're going to get into is you're going to, you know, as you're trying to automate certain things or you're trying to understand how I can improve 
this particular step along the way, you're going to, you're going to come up with probably a Pareto analysis of what are the things, you know, what are my, what are my failure reasons and, and, and how much impact do these things make? Just the act of doing that. Once you, once you understand that this is the particular step I really got to hone in on, then, then you start to lay out a pretty good path. You start to understand where, where the focus needs to be. So just quantifying what, what, how good could I get if I could fix this, um, that, that tells you that that sort of helps you prioritize things. And, mm. and so, you know, that to me, that's the whole thing is whenever you're doing any kind of continuous improvement is what's the bang for the buck. So I need to know where my pain points are. I need to quantify them. And then I, I need to understand how do I, you know, can I fix it or is this going to take an upgrade or, you know, you know, and, and just trying to lay that out. Can yes. I eliminate some of those exception paths with process improvements? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think the thing you need to um, take a look at in that, too, in addition to the question of why, when you're going through your current state, it's it's how much. And ideally, you're going to have data on that. So the more you be, you're able to have data around your processes and your system and can answer that question objectively and clearly, the better. But even if you don't have the data that's telling you how much, because it's very common, you get in a, a session talking about current state and people are going to say, oh, this was the most painful thing ever. And then you ask about it and you say, well, it's only happened once in the last uh, two years, but it just happened, you know, last week and I had to spend four hours on it. And I mean, that's a real pain, but it's also not one you want to design your process or your system around. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to your point, Adam, of can you eliminate those, you, you do have to get uh, creative in how you're looking at what your options are for this. So I, I want to give an example of one where, um, it's a very different type of example. I, I love Dave's example on the uh, copy paste and, and what the challenges were there. The example I want to talk about in the uh, I worked with a retirement services provider who had a they prided themselves a lot on being able to you know meet whatever it is that the customer asked for, and that tied into their competitive advantage and what system they were using. That had been it was a home built system that had been highly customized for things, and it, it was. Um, it was a culture, though, of pretty much saying yes to anything that uh, clients were asking for and then always just dealing with the operational challenges down the road. So um, it wasn't just one case of trying to figure, can we customize this or that? It was a constant battle of there's always something coming up that people are going to have to figure out process workarounds to deal with everything that's getting promised from sales. And this wasn't just sales going you know, off track of what they were supposed to do. This was culturally what the organization was about doing that. So that type of shift was one that um, the direction to, to address that was really putting in a robust process for um, product exceptions and an oversight into if you're going to uh, request something outside the norm, it's got to get approved by certain people. It's got to have more of a, an analysis of what the cost is around that. Uh, and, uh, and there was also an increase of uh, charging customers for certain things that if you're going to look for something like this, then we're going to have to charge you for that. So this was a case where you're able to, they were able to knock out a lot of the challenges just through a, a pretty big cultural shift that required a lot of a lot of change with their customers and internally to be able to make those shifts. But in that case, it was not the technology that was the, the need. It was about uh, what they had to change from a people perspective, culture. Yeah. And, and Brian, Brian said something that sparked another thought with me was when he said it's not just, it, you know, when he said how much, when you talk about how much um, I got, I got, <laughs> I got once got burned in a, in a different go live where we were talking about, we, we, we kind of prioritized the activities that sites were doing and, 
and we, you know, it was like this one site sold so many million pounds a year and this other site sold another so many million pounds a year. We had this tiny site that only was like 10% of the total footprint. Well, we didn't really fully appreciate until after go live was that it was 10% of the total volume by pounds, but it was 55% of the total volume by transaction. So in the, it's in this kind of stuff, it's a transactions that burned it. They, they sold a whole bunch of little tiny things. And, and we, we fell on our face on that site because we did not, we didn't look at it right. We did not appreciate the fact that they just did a whole lot more transactions. And I mean, you have any fishing transactions and you're doing a whole lot of them. That's a problem. Yeah. That's well, there, there's so many balances between different sites and stuff like that. You know, I've had clients that have offices in, um, in New Zealand or the U S that are, are very, uh, expensive to hire personnel to manage processes. So automating it becomes a big part of that process improvement. Um, where on the other hand, you know, and, and there are other places where labor is far less expensive. And so it may make more sense to have people do those things. And from a perspective of operational excellence, the, the, you know, the training versus the automation are, are two very different sides of that, that coin. So I, I definitely appreciate that example quite a lot, Dave. Um, Brian also made, said something that, uh, that came up uh, that triggered something in my mind. What role does governance play in operational excellence and business process management? Yeah, it's a yeah, I'll start, David. Go ahead, go ahead, I'll have more to add. So, uh, yeah, I mean, governance is critical as with any uh, enterprise activities. And there are, are a few layers of how you can look at this. You know, one of the key things just from a purely process, uh, pure process focus is business process owners, making sure you really have a clear definition and line of sight into who is responsible for overseeing that process, for uh, managing it, knowing knowing the status of how things are going, accepting changes to it, you know, as you're introducing new products and services or new types mm -hmm. of customers, there's going to be impacts to your processes and someone's got to own those and be able to uh, deal with what the changes are going to be to prep people for what's going to happen to uh, say, hey, the impact of this is massive and we need to have some senior decision making around whether this is something we can afford to take on to be able, or is this going to be a, you know, a minor increase in revenue that's going to be so catastrophic to the way we operate that it's going to hurt us in a lot of ways. So, you know, having governance from that perspective and business process owners who uh, have aligned into the senior leadership who need to be involved. And, and then you have uh, other areas as well from governance that are, are going to play into your processes, even if they're not a specifically process focus, you know, things like data governance, um, bad data will absolutely have a big impact on your processes and cause a lot of workarounds and extra extra efforts around it. So I, I don't want to get too deep down the data rabbit hole. That's a whole <laughs> topic in and of itself, but that's a big one. You know, um, Things like project uh, governance as well, as you are implementing mm -hmm. things on new projects, making sure you have that, uh, that type of oversight. So, uh, and I know that was uh, something Stuart talked a lot about in our last session too, of what it, what it looks like uh, to do an implementation, kind of the oversight you need uh, from project perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so for me, the governance, that's kind of the business rule side of things, right? That, that's where you kind of get into to, uh, the decision points and how do you make this decision? What makes, it, what makes it allowable or not allowable? And, you know, a lot of times folks get caught up with, um, with uh, thinking about governments in terms of authorization and who it has to go through and stuff like that. But when you, when you try to do this kind of business process mapping, it, it, it's uh, – you. Uh, business process management, I should say, it begins with business process mapping, but ultimately it's the management side, right? Um, you have to ask the question, so what what are you, what logic are you using to make these decisions? 
And then, you know, can I, uh, to me, governance should be about defining the rules and then automate as much as you can. So, yeah. so you know, I don't, I don't, when folks are going through authorizing things, I, I, I don't like, I don't like it. I don't like the notion of it has to go through this person and this person and this person. And I'd, I'd like to, I mean, it may have to for, mm -hmm. for reasons, for a variety of reasons, because authorization limits and stuff like that. But the key mm -hmm. thing is when you're deciding things along the way, what are, what are the criteria you use to make that decision? Can I automate that? I mean, do I have enough data to be able to do that? And, and, and if not, how could I? And, and so when you think about it that way, then, then now suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm my my governance is no longer you know I'm I'm not just the person who has to check this off I'm the person or one of a, several that have to have to decide what the rules are and then my system takes care of of, of the actual transactional piece you know that's kind of yeah Dave you you get into a lot too if organizations are so focused on those approval paths you get a lot of checkers checking the checkers and a process that's yes. more problematic yeah. and no one owning the the quality of the process because everyone owns it and you might see one one process that the same information is getting checked three or four times people have different standards and how they're checking it and it, it it's it can be a tough sell for people especially when the technology doesn't support very well but it's not just about the technology but uh, of trying to say you don't need to have this many sets of eyes on something because it's not improving the quality if you don't have someone who is just accountable to something being right yeah, there's there's so much wrapped up in this conversation of operational excellence and achieving that and business process management and the improvements that are included in it and how I get there. And so, I, you know, I, we could talk about this for days, I'm sure, um, especially <laughs> if, if I'm involved in it. <laughs> it's a bit long winded sometimes. So I want to thank everybody that that joined us today. I uh, thank both of you guys, Dave and, and Brian. Um, you know, we really appreciate your guys expertise on this. All right. Thank you, Dave. Great presentation, as always, and really interesting stuff uh, addressing the process side of the people process technology uh, triangle of digital transformation. So thank you for, for that deep dive. Uh, there's a couple interesting takeaways and threads we want to pull on as part of the follow-up discussion. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 82. And we just had uh, Dave Belvick on the show, Kyler, talking about operational excellence. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways from that presentation? Absolutely. Um, well, Dave always does such a great holistic job of wrapping a bow around operations, which can be very complicated, uh, and, and identifying that target operating model that's needed to go through a digital transformation. Uh, I think the thing that I always like about Dave's approach is it's so process-based and he gives really actionable tactics in that keynote that um, that all organizations can take a look at. And I think a lot of times we associate and, you know, you would have a better insight than myself, a target operating model as a one-time exercise or only going through when you're looking for a new process, a new technology, a, a new roles within the organization, when really it should be a constant health check throughout, uh, you know, quarterly, annually, those types of things to ensure that you're staying focused on that optimization and identifying any key indicators that something might need to be changed. So I think I really like that idea of his approach is it's more of a journey than a one-time exercise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it kind of that continuous improvement uh, sort of mindset. And it also, he always brings in the people side of it. And I know our our overall brand messaging is pre people process technology, right? They go together as a synergy and one cannot work without the other. And I think a lot of times we can look at a target operating model as just that, an operating model, how the business functions without thinking about the human component of that. And I, I like how he really focuses on organizational change, again, from a very tactical approach, so that you can not only create this target, but achieve the target through how the organization behaves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he, and he, he does do a nice job of tying not just technology, but but KPIs and those, those sorts of metrics and measurements of, of operational excellence as well. Definitely. And so to follow on to that, Eric, um, is there something when it comes to any of the third stage resources that you found is kind of a best process manual or a piece of content that you found really successful in understanding either the target operating model or just overall operational excellence that we could give our audience as a follow up here? Yeah, there's a there's a couple things. I mean, we've had a, a couple of different uh, podcast interviews that have have dug into the whole target operating model and business process management uh, side of things. So there's a I don't know if we have do we have a playlist on our YouTube channels that that cover business process and operations. Um, so that that'd be one thing is go to the third stage YouTube channel and uh, and find those uh, playlists that pertain to operational excellence. And you can certainly go to the my individual YouTube channel as well. Uh, just search Eric Kimberling. You can find uh, other, some of them, there's some duplicate content or ones that are on both channels, but there's unique content to both channels as well. So you might want to check them both out. Um, and then we also have, um, you know, our digital transformation report that we publish each year, or we just put, published our 2023 transformation report. It covers a whole host of best practices around digital transformation, including um, operational best practices and things of that nature. But it also, also gets into change management, digital strategy, technology and stuff like that too. So those are three things that come to mind are, are the two YouTube channels and the uh, the transformation report. 
Absolutely. And again, we've kind of preached um, with Blythe earlier about joining the conversation. If you do have questions about operations, they can be very complex. And the packaging that we provide and value to our, our clients here at Third Stage and our community in general is just the overall process audit and understanding where you at now and what are your opportunities to move towards uh, a better, efficient, healthier business in the future. And that's what Dave does on a day-to-day basis. So if you have questions, please feel free to connect with him on LinkedIn or reach out to Eric or myself. Um, and we can, you know, kind of help advise on what are just some basic next steps in a really informal environment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Be happy to brainstorm ideas with you and, and bounce around ideas as it relates to, to your uh, digital transformation, whether it's on the, the operational side or whether it's the digital strategy, the software selection, implementation, change management, any of that stuff. We're happy to brainstorm ideas with you. So reach out at any point for that, for sure. Well, good. Well, I want to thank you for uh, another great episode, Kyler, another epic episode that was packed full of content. So I uh, appreciate your your time here today and appreciate the audience for being here as well. And uh, be sure to, to like and subscribe to the, the podcast in this particular episode and uh, share it with colleagues if you think they would find it interesting. We'd love to get the word out to more people. Um, we have new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out again next Wednesday. And uh, you can also go back and see the other 81 episodes that you haven't seen if you missed any of those 81 episodes prior to this one as well. So hope you're, you all have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Mm-hmm.